Welcome to Media Roots Radio. Today we have a very special in-person guest in the studio, journalist and author Yasha Levine. He's the former editor of Moscow-based satirical newspaper The Exile, the author of Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, and also a journalist for Pando Daily. I first heard of Yasha Levine when he wrote an extremely controversial article called Almost everyone involved in developing Tor was or is funded by the U.S. government. I remember when I first read this article, I found it pretty jarring myself, taken aback by a lot of the details that he included in the article. As Yasha Levine says, this information is out there, but it's not very well known, and it's certainly not emphasized by those who promote it. So today I'm extremely excited to be able to interview Yasha Levine, and this is going to be a very long interview longer than what we normally do, but I thought it would be best to leave pretty much the entire discussion in its entirety. And mostly we spend time talking about his book, Surveillance Valley, and sort of the history of how the internet started as a military program and was turned into something for the public. I apologize for reading this verbatim, but it sums up his book uh, better than I could. In Surveillance Valley, Yasha Levine traces the history of the internet back to its beginnings as a Vietnam-era tool for spying on guerrilla fighters and anti-war protesters, a military computer networking project that ultimately envisioned the creation of a global system of surveillance and prediction. Levine shows how the same military objectives that drove the development of early internet technology are still at the heart of Silicon Valley today. Spies, counterinsurgency campaigns, hippie entrepreneurs, privacy apps funded by the CIA. From the 1960s to the 2010s, this revelatory and sweeping story will make you reconsider what you know about the most powerful, ubiquitous tool ever created. Tell me about the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA. Uh, why did they start it originally? And how did it evolve throughout the late 50s and 60s? Uh, well... So, yeah, the Advanced Research uh, Projects Agency, ARPA, uh, is the defense uh, sort of uh, R&D wing of uh, the Pentagon uh, that we now know as DARPA. It started in 1957 as a response to the Sputnik. Uh, Sputnik was this uh, small volleyball-sized uh, satellite um, that the Soviet Union launched uh, and went around the world a couple of times, you know, and let out this beep, 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 and, and crashed into, 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 the, into, the, um, into the atmosphere. Um, but the Sputnik was uh, significant at the time because what it showed, it wasn't the Sputnik that was, that was the thing that, that, that freaked um, the military out and freaked America out, but it was the, the missile on which it went up. So it was the first inter intercontinental uh, ballistic missile, ICBM. And what it showed at the time was that uh, the Soviet Union had already developed, uh, successfully de tested a, a nuclear weapon, nuclear bomb. And so what it showed at the time was that uh, the Soviet Union could potentially put a, a nuclear warhead on a, on a missile and, you know, send it out uh, and have it come down on any point in America. And uh, at the time, uh, the, only, the only defense that America had against... Uh, against nuclear attack was which which was which was which it was believed would be delivered by an airplane of some kind was was an early warning radar system that was had been that had 
that wasn't even yet online, but they had they had been building it for seven years at that point, 1957. It was this really massive project that spanned the entire nation. It was like the first really uh, national computer network because it had all these radar installations and it tied them up into these uh, giant like acre-sized IBM computer centers. And that could then you know that was connected to these terminals and you could track air, air, enemy aircraft. And so you could track enemy aircraft and then potentially intercept them with f- fighter jets and. Uh, but like if it's a nuke, there's nothing that you could stop it. A nuke on a, on a, on a, on a ICBM. And this is before Russia actually developed the, their first nuclear weapon, right? No, this is after. Oh, this is after. Okay. So this is after. So I, the, the first nuclear weapon I had the test was, I think, 1949. Okay. okay. So it was like, uh, it was, but it was just, you know, exploded on the ground as a test in, um, in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, but, but no, this was, this was, so they already had a nu- they had nuclear capability and now they developed you know, the, uh, the missile technology, it's sort of like mm-hmm. what Korea has of course, now. Yeah. But I mean, there was a real successful, real, you know, uh, did we, did we have ICBM no. capable nukes at the time? No, no. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so, I aware of that. and so, um, and so that was part of like the, the freak out, right? Okay. Uh, that was the reason why the Sputnik was such a, like a, I mean, it was really a, like a cultural shock, I think uh, to America. I mean, on the one hand it was, because it was cool, you know, because there, there was this like thing up there circling Earth and sending out this radio signal that anyone could pick up with like a little, you know, radio. Uh, and um, it showed that like, well, America was supposed to be this, um, you know, engine of growth and technology and technological innovation, you know. And like it, it actually uh, failed in something as simple, as, as, as fundamental as this, getting something into space for the first time, right? So it got so, you know, the Soviet Union got something into space first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was the start of the space race, right? That was the, the start of the space race. And so people culturally and, you know, um, culturally it was a shock because it showed that America was like inferior mm-hmm. and it made people really fear the Soviet Union suddenly because it's like, it was this, it looked like a, you know, technological powerhouse, right? Mm-hmm. That could, could uh, outpace America. And on the other hand, um, of course, there was the defense component there, right? Like, or, you know, the, and so... Um, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, like, um, essentially needed like a PR, needed to do something to, uh, to put the public at ease and to put his critics at ease because he was, you know, painted as being going soft on on communism and he was, he was seen as weak because he allowed America to fall behind. And so ARPA was developed as kind of this, the, the solution to, uh, to America's, um, you know, like technological backwardness. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it was their gap, the gap, yes, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the always, the, the good old gap. And so it was at the time it was seen as like a kind of an innovation because it was going to be a civilian agency that would be, be de- developing military, uh, missile technology, you know, mm-hmm. but it would be a civilian led agency. So it was going to be this kind of new, it was a new type of new type of uh, management structure because it was seen that like that, you know, normal, the normal military was like so. There was so much red tape and so much, um, so much um, competition between the different, the different, um, different armed services that uh, like it actually, it actually stymied and and, and held innovation back because uh, it was like just this. Uh, it was just a corrupt. You know, um, um, everybody wanted to increase their budget. There was overlapping, you know, projects that were developing the same kind of thing, but they weren't really getting anything done. So it was believed that you needed a kind of basically a, like a startup. So mm-hmm. ARPA was this, you know, they didn't call it that back then, but it was seen as this lean, 
you know, government agency that would do like advanced weapons design focused primarily on space, space age stuff like nuclear uh, uh, satellites um, and, and of course, developing nuclear missile technology. Right. Mm. Um, and this is done through a lot of private entities at the time. So the idea was that it would, yes, the idea was that it would function as almost like a, just a management kind of uh, layer, but it would co- contract out all the work to private contractors, to military contractors. So totally. it would be super lean. You know, you'd actually be actually almost nobody working there. I mean, it'd be a very small government agency that would pick the best, you know, candidate that could develop the technology, then farm it out and then mm-hmm. reap the rewards of, from that. Um, that was the idea. And it was like, ARPA was going to be this huge thing. It was, it was a, it was a big deal. And, but ARPA very quickly was gutted uh, because the armed, ser- armed services, they, they saw that ARPA as a threat because it was a civilian led um, um, civilian-led agency uh, that was go- essentially going to take over a lot of the uh, research, uh, military research and weapons d- development that was being done by the Air Force, by the Army themselves, by the Navy themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they saw that ARPA as a threat to their power, to their funds, to their to the to their budget, you know. To the and so they conspired um, to get it defunded. <laughs> and so, like two years after it was created, it was like. It was uh, it was like left with a tiny little budget. All of its programs got taken away from it. All of its missile development technology programs, and was handed over to a newly created agency called NASA. So NASA became NASA became this uh, agency that um, took took on a lot of the funds from from ARPA. And NASA was a purely civilian agency; it didn't have any military applications. So all the military stuff was still were still in the in the hands of the armed services and the non military develop, technology development. Although there was obviously overlap and um, kind of a synergy between these things, uh, uh, was like given to NASA and ARPA was left dead on the road, and it was like expected that it would be you know eventually defunded completely and it would just like die, die off. Um, but then there was this guy named William Godell, who had come on pretty early. Um, uh, I think he came on a year or two after ARPA was created, as this kind of weird shadowy manager of various different projects that were kind of um from ARPA and he was tr- he was pushing uh to to create to make ARPA uh a kind of a counterinsurgency agency the the um the counterinsurgency technology agency that would develop uh tools and weapons for what he saw and what others saw uh, at the time was a new kind of war that America was facing so like <clears throat> got to go back to the to that time and in the 1960s early 1960s, America was getting more involved in, in, in Vietnam. And of course, that would lead to a, the Vietnam War. Um, and it was facing insurgencies and guerrilla um, guerrilla um, rebellions and uh, uh, all around the world at the time. And it was also facing an increasingly sort of hostile domestic situation, volatile domestic and political environment where, you know, you had the civil rights movement. You had, uh, you had you know, militant black activism. You had uh, the anti-war movement. You had powerful left-wing organizations like the Students for Democratic Society. You had, you had groups like the Weather Underground that were like detonating bombs in, you know, in government buildings uh, seemingly on a, on a daily basis. And so you know, people, people looked at this in the military, looked at this, and they saw a kind of a new kind of war that was unfolding around the world, a, a war that you couldn't fight with nukes. 
Uh, you couldn't really drop a nuke on, you know, Detroit, <laughs> uh, unless I mean, maybe you know some people probably would like, wouldn't mind that. But <laughs> but uh, but you, you couldn't drop a, you couldn't send a tank division in there because well the the enemy wasn't wearing uniform. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't like line, walking in formation. The enemy in these guerrilla movements, whether whether they were abroad or or, or, or domestic. And domestically, they thought that it wasn't a real insurgency that was basically being underwritten by the Soviet Union <clears throat> at the time. Of course, yeah. You, they were part of the civilian population. And so the idea was, how do you fight these new wars? You needed new kinds of weapons to fight this new kind of insurgency. Uh, and so um, William Godel, um, um, who had like a, a, a long history working um, uh, for the in the navy, um, but uh, also being this kind of liaison between the, the 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 navy, the CIA, and the NSA, and he was and, and he worked for ARPA. He was kind of in, in this strange shadowy guy uh, who was pushing uh, Eisenhower to make ARPA the, like the seat of. Um, the development of this techno- of this new kind of technology, it, and it wasn't like just so there were uh, there was different kind of stuff. So there is how do you fight insurgencies, right? We we need to we need we need like a think tank and, a, and, a, and an R and D lab to figure that out, and so he was pushing for ARPA to be that, mm-hmm. and um, it, it didn't go anywhere for a couple of years. But when uh, John F Kennedy was uh, elected, he really liked the idea, and, and he and he gave gave uh, William Godel the green light. To, to remake ARPA into into uh, a counterinsurgency research and development agency, and that's what happened, and that's and that's and that's sort of the the, the beginning this of this, the setup of about of, of where the internet was about to come from. You you go into William Goodell quite a bit in your book, and there's just a lot of personalities in your book in general that I that I for the most part haven't even heard of, and how crucial some of these people were to the development of what we know today as the internet early on in your book you 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 can actually pull a couple quotes from two different US officials about what kind of signals intelligence was already available to them during the Vietnam war mm. um, that was based around some of this technology being developed at the time and one of one of the quotes was there's this main control room that looks like the one we saw on TV during the Apollo moonshots or maybe something out of a James Bond movie. There's computer terminals everywhere, but the main feature is a huge three-story tall lucite, or maybe it's plastic, I don't know, full-color depiction of the whole Ho Chi Minh Trail with real-time depictions of trucks coming down the trail. It's wild, man. And then someone, some guy named John T. Halliday, a retired Air Force pilot, says that Remember those huge electronic boards from the movie Dr. Strangelove that showed Russian bombers headed for the U.S. and ours headed at them, he wrote? Well, Task Force Alpha is a lot like that, except with real-time displays in full color, three stories tall. It's the whole goddamn Ho Chi Minh Trail in full living color. Um, <laughs> so speak on that a little bit. So this was, when, what time period was this exactly? The mid-60s? Yeah. Okay. So this, and what he's referring to, so this guy, this, this is pulled out of a memoir that was written by an Air Force pilot who was running b- bombing raids uh, during the Vietnam War on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and so what happened? So ARPA was involved in a lot of different projects during the Vietnam War, um, and it was involved in everything from figuring out like sort of you know strategy to um, to uh, de-incentivize rebellion, you know, and they were testing out in the field things like can't does hunger work? 
you know, does starvation work to, you know, de-incentivize rebellion in, yeah. in, in, in rest of like populations in, 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 the, in Southeast Asia? Does it do targeted assassinations work? Do like relocation in, in, into sort of secure village compounds? Does that help to isolate the population from uh, the sort of insurgent population that is among it? And may, may, does that make it easier f- to to isolate and to uh, sort of bring out uh, and out of out of out of hiding the the insurgents, you know, like things like that. So a very human, um, like very direct, you know, hands-on kind of uh, population control mm-hmm. as, as a way to fight insurgencies. At the same time, they were developing high-tech stuff, like developing the first drones, mm-hmm. you know, creating these drones that were, which, which were essentially milita- miniaturized helicopters. Uh, that uh, would be uh, could be controlled by radio, and the radio like uh, app- control apparatus was like you know mounted on this jeep on this uh, jeep wrangler you know mm-hmm. old school like jeep original jeep and you know it'd be pretty it's pretty funny the co- the controller you know the drone controller is a, is just a jeep loaded with all these you know all this radio <laughs> gear it's pretty funny <laughs> and then you had to have line of sight with uh, with a drone so you couldn't oh, get too God. far away yeah and so I mean that's the original the first ones you know yeah those drones are actually also used. Um, um, by the Navy, um, because you could fly them, you could f- fly them out and like look for, uh, like, basically like look for torpedoes and like look for you know submarines. And so the idea mm-hmm. was almost like a scout ship, right? Yeah. You can, you could, you could, and you have aerial view. So, but ARPA was involved in that. You know, ARPA was also involved in developing the uh, the M six the um, the M sixteen the uh, the well what now is like used in all these school shootings as a lighter, um, smaller. Um, um, sort of machine gun that could be used in the field and that could be used by, you know, Vietnamese, uh, sort of uh, South Vietnamese uh, um, um, soldiers because they were seen as kind of smaller than, you know, the average American. And, you know, they, and the, uh, you know, they had to carry them in the jungle and they, so you needed a new kind of smaller machine gun that could pack the same kind of firepower. So they were doing all that stuff as well. And one of the projects that ARPA worked on was is called this... Uh, uh, was what they what they called trying to bug the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So um, air air cover um, or jungle cover was a really big problem for 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 uh, like American military doctrine at the time because at the time the way that the Vietnam War was being fought is basically you just try to bomb everything, annihilate everything, just carpet bomb everything. Mm-hmm. If something moves, you call in an airstrike and just take everything out that's there. But the problem was that there was a, a, a jungle. You know, the jungle was a problem because it, it, you can't see what's on the ground. And so the Ho Chi Minh Trail was allowed uh, uh, North, Vietnamese, North Vietnamese fighters to uh, move, you know, giant convoys of, 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 of weapons and people across the border into South Vietnam from Laos and like move completely undetected and, do, and you know, stage these surprise raids on, on, on American and, and South Vietnamese forces. And so... One of the things that uh, ARPA did was um, first it was it uh, developed it uh, led the, the the testing of Agent Orange to to what would what it would do is destroy the the, the you know, jungle cover basically was destroy all plant life and mm-hmm. so uh, denude you know the jungle completely and so and so that was one of the ways of dealing with uh, jungle cover <laughs> is to just destroy everything and and ARPA played a central role in testing um, Agent Orange is really horrific and very. Um, very brutal and, uh, um, I mean, heartless way of, of waging war because it it still affects people today. People are born with def- deformities because of because of the, the toxicity of that chemical, mm-hmm. and it's like it doesn't go away; it just stays in the ground, and go, gets in the water supply. So that was, and but it also uh, le- uh, helped develop this 
uh, again, this high-tech um, network, surveillance network, where they would be able to drop sensors into the jungle from 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 the air, and these things would like there's like little missiles that would that would point down and they just and they'd like just wedge into the ground like like a stake, and they'd have like microphones, um, they would have like urine uh, detectors, they would have vibration detectors, um, and the idea is that you you spread this around the, the general area of the uh, of the of the trail. And you could be able to hear, like, if there's, you know, cars moving, they would vibrate the ground, if there's, like, you know, trucks. If, if, there's a, if you can detect urine uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the environment around the sensor, that means that there's, like, people moving through their, their peeing. You yeah. Know? Uh, of course, then, you could, then there's microphones, you could hear people talk, or you could hear a car moves, whatever. And so that was, that was like, these were wireless sensors that were, de- that were developed in partnership with, with, with ARPA, and they would then relay... Um, uh, this information, uh, like with, 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 via like a series of repeaters, you know, who that would then direct the the, the signal to a uh, a, com- a command center that was uh, that ran on an IBM computer, and they had like a visual representation of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and things would like light up, you know, like you like a, sec- a sector would light up, it'd be like, oh, there's vibration here, or there's a, there's a urine detection here. Yeah, yeah. And then, or there's like, oh, there's a, like some sound coming in and they'd like to li- be able to hear. It's like, oh, so there's some Vietnamese, you know, like being spoken. And then they'd say, okay, we're getting, we're getting movement, you know, in, in sector C9. And they call in an airstrike. And so the idea was to create this sort of digital cybernetic battlefield where you didn't even need to have anyone there to know what's going on, mm-hmm. right? You'd be able to do it with these with, with this network of sensors, um, and um, so ARPA was very much involved in that. But what was interesting about that is that, um, well, first of all, that technology would would very quickly be imported back to to America and would then be used in, in the Mexican American border um, to create the sort of digital you know uh, fence that could that you'd be able to tell you know if someone's crossing the border based on again. Uh, vibrations and, and and things like that. So that technology was used very quickly domestically. Mm-hmm. And it was tested in Vietnam and used domestically. And in Vietnam, it proved to be a, a total failure. I mean, it, it worked in theory. Yeah. But the problem is that the Vietnamese were able to game it because they understood what was going on, and they knew that you could like just like piss on a fuck, on a sensor, mm-hmm. and it would think that there's someone there. And then you you know you'd like jump up and down or like. You know, next to next to <laughs> next to one of those vibrate vibration sensors, and they think that there'd be a huge convoy, you know, coming through, and they'd call in an airstrike, but there'd be just empty jungle. Meanwhile, they're moving the convoy through another position. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, that cybernetic system, and it it gave uh, military planners this feeling of superiority and power, because the the model that they saw was that there were troop movements and they were being annihilated. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was an object objective, you know, and it was being hit. And they were winning because they were kill, you know, they were, they were destroying all this stuff. But, but they didn't ever, you know, go and check because, I mean, it was hostile territory. You know, it's a pretty pretty difficult to go out there. But but so the system gave them a sense of, of empowerment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was actually being used against against them and used to, to deceive them. So it was a it was a kind of an, an interesting um, lesson in uh, uh, how the models that you create about the world and then act on don't necessarily guarantee success, even if, even if you have superiority, it seems like, or knowledge superiority. It's kind of like with Hillary Clinton, maybe, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, her, and her, like, super-duper, you know, a data system that, like, modeled everything, you know, and predicted everything, and they like, dr- drove all parts of her campaign. I mean, and those two things are actually much more connected than, they're actually directly connected, 
because the technology that was developed there in the Vietnam in Vietnam, you know, with with input from ARPA, uh, would you know you can draw a straight line from that um, cybernetic system that bugged the battlefield to you know data um, systems that are powering elections today. You know, I mean, they're 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 like they are they are on a continuum. I mean, it's the it's the logical end result of that, and they actually are very much connected. So, of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. even just the idea of if we waged a you know, I guess Iraq wouldn't necessarily be the best example because I don't know how many people there actually used cell phones. But if we wage some kind of modern war today on the battlefield, I mean, it would be, you know, unless every insurgent turned off their cell phone or every electronic tracking device, you know, that would be one way to populate a virtual battlefield or some kind of screen or whatever. I mean, but it's so much more sophisticated today that that technology almost seems kind of novelty yeah, you don't need, you don't you don't need to put sensors on the ground anymore. The sensors exactly. are yeah. sensors are built into you know how we live. So we, we have yeah, our cell yeah, phones, yeah. we have our computers, we have our cars with our GPS systems, you know, and our like OnStar systems that mm-hmm. you know are always dialing back. You have your Tesla that's basically inter- connected to the internet, you know, like like so we have actually our entire we, we wear the sensors on us, mm-hmm. and the same thing is true for you know uh, you know for um, for uh, like the war in Afghanistan or Iraq or, um, you know, when your drone strikes are called in very frequently based on you know, cell phone signals. Uh, and so those are very important in, 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 in actually targeting, targeting, um, targeting uh, combatants, you know. Uh, and again, that phone signal could be, I mean, they're not stupid, you know, just like the Vietnamese were not stupid about it. So it's like you can use that to deceive or to give yourself cover if you understand how it's being used against you. And so... So the, 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 this idea of bugging the battlefield, again, this is, a, this is something that's now a century, half a century you know, old, this idea, you know, is we've, we live in, the, in, in, the, in a reality that is actually true. You know, the battlefield has been bugged, and the battlefield is kind of not just a, not just a military battlefield, but it's like all society. Mm-hmm. Society is like that. We're all bugged. We're all walking around. We all can be modeled and watched. So, yeah. So it's and and if you if you look at any presentations about modern command control communication um, systems, you know, and about like I mean, this is just like a normal part of what the military does. You know, you have you're always building models of of troop of, of, of troop movements of your own troop movements of supply needs of mm-hmm. of of your enemies' movements of 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 what their capabilities are. You know, um, like so the. And you're using that based on information you're getting from satellites, from you know cell phones, from from um, you know intercepted uh, communications, and so that integrated kind of battlefield, the cybernetic battlefield, is like it is much more sophisticated today than it was 50 years ago when it was just being built. But it's uh, probably no less no no less effect no more effective in helping actually America win wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it's it seems like it just it sets you up for having just overconfidence about what's what's going on and a false perception of reality. But we can, we can get into this later. But yeah. I'm I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this idea that how do you protect yourself against this kind of stuff? And it seems like the most popular sort of activist method currently is encryption. Yeah, and. And I know you have a lot of opinions on that, so maybe we can we can talk about those later. But well, I mean, you know, <laughs> encryption. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's encryption is one of these things. Encryption is is a domain 
for militaries and for governments. You know, I mean, look, uh, in the same way that, okay, light encryption does help protect your information from people who might want to steal it, you know, from hackers who identity, identity th- thieves and things like that. Like just the same way that a door um, lock mm-hmm. um, protects your home from invasion, you know, and from robbery, you know, to, to a degree. Yeah. Because if someone really wants to get in, no lock will stop it. Yeah. Know? They'll break the window. They'll, they'll, break, they'll break down the door. They'll get in through the skylight. I mean, there's so many different ways of, or like, you know, like, or like Santa Claus will go through the chimney. You know, there's like all these different ways that you can get in. Mm-hmm. But it does, it does serve as some protection, you know. Uh, but I think as, as, as a protection from, I mean, the, the question is who are you protecting yourself from? So the, your door is not going to protect you from the NSA. Mm-hmm. Your door is not going to protect you from the FBI. Your door is not going to protect you from even your local police necessarily, depending on who you are, you know. Uh, and the, the door is also not going to protect you from people who are really motivated to get in. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing with encryption, I think. You know, it doesn't matter what encryption you're using, you know, it really won't protect you from people who are motivated to get in because there's also sorts of different ways to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, who are you afraid of and why? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think this is a central question that people should ask themselves when they get start thinking about, like, I need to use encryption, I need to use Signal, I need to use Tor. The question is, who are you protecting yourself? What, I mean, what are you actually doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, are you, are you, if you're trying to overthrow the state, you know, <clears throat> good luck to you, man, you know? <laughs> good luck with Tor, you know? Good luck with Signal. I mean, aside from the fact that they're, they're funded by the U.S. government, that aside, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter what you use, you know? It's like, if you're... You know, anything lower than that, like, what do you, what, what, again, what is the protection from? Who is the protection from? Um, it's very, like, people's, people's idea of privacy seems very, um, like, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not definite, you know, it's, they're not, it's, it's, you, you can't really explain what you're afraid of, mm-hmm. right? Just you're afraid of generally being surveilled, which is a strange fear because we're surveilled all the time. You know, we go out on the street, we're watched by people. Yeah. Um, and, um. Um, you know, and uh, of course, when people talk about that, they don't, they never really think about being surveilled by Google or being surveilled by Facebook or being surveilled by your telephone company because no amount of, you know, Tor or signal is going to prevent that because we use these services every day Mm -hmm. and the normal encryption technology that's available to us doesn't, doesn't protect us from corporate surveillance uh, which is, you know, and then of course that corp- whatever Google has and whatever Facebook has, the NSA has, the FBI has, the CIA has, you know, like, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is a, this is a big topic. I mean, maybe we can get into it. Um, Let's uh, maybe save it for the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause, cause I know we, I have a lot more questions about it yeah. and you have a lot more to say about it. I mean, if, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're like, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, if you're, ISIS, you know, you probably don't want to be like running around the desert with a, with, you know, with a cell phone signal, you know, like, uh, you probably want to put it in airplane mode. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> just, 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 I don't know. That's my, that's my suggestion. Not that I'm, you know, in any way affiliated with that terrorist We're not, uh, yeah, we are not, um, advocating for giving <laughs> ISIS fighters ideas, but you could, you could technically do that and it would probably, uh, save you, you know, a drone strike or two. <laughs> airplane mode it's literally airplane <laughs> mode isn't it yeah <laughs> the, um, the drone mode yeah, yeah. yeah. so <laughs> you say in your book what Karl Marx's Das Capital did for 19th century socialists Norbert Wiener's cybernetics did for America's anti-communist coal warriors 
explain what cybernetics is and, and why you think it was so influential? Well, you know, I mean, cybernetics is, so cybernetics um, is influential because it's, we live in a cybernetic world. And so the ideas that underpin our computer world, our internet world, you know, originated uh, largely from the mind of this one guy named uh, Norbert Wiener. And Norbert uh, was this brilliant, brilliant guy. Like um, he was a, you know, savant. Um, he went to, I think, Harvard at age 13. You know, his dad made him like memorize, you know, like entire uh, Greek trage- tragedies uh, by, uh, and like recite them from memory when he was like in his, you know, when he was like nine or 10. Mm-hmm. And he was this, really brilliant uh, mathematician who uh, would end up uh, teaching at MIT. And um, his, um, his contribution to the world is, is kind of coming up with this idea of realizing that um, information is something almost like a physical resource or f- something physical because, you know, um, it, information isn't just like abstract or doesn't just exist in the mind or, uh, but actually can cause, um, a reaction in the real world. And like, you imagine like, you know, a cat chasing a mouse, you know, the fact that the cat, the fact that the mouse sees the cat running after it makes it like run away. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and it's, it's the, the mouse is receiving information through its sense organs and it's processing it through its brain and all these things. But like the fact that, you know, that, it's getting information about the cat and it's that the cat wants to eat it and it runs away, you know? So the information is it transfers actually has a, like a physical effect. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, and that like, and, and his other, um, like sort of leap is to, to, to understand that like you could have information transfer between, you know, um, humans, people and, and machines and that machines could also be uh, designed in such a way as to, is to, to 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 be part of a kind of an information transfer with with people. So you could actually create um, a sort of a binding between people and machines. And that uh, and then he and, and so he developed this into a, a, a kind of um, multidisciplinary science uh, or study of what he called um, you know cybernetics. And he and he described it as the uh, the study of information in 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 humans and 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 machines and where he saw that the world looks sort of writ large as kind of an information machine, like that everything is sort of exists in, you know, in reality, but it intera- everything interacts with everything else in this kind of interlocking network of information. And that information is co- courses through nature, you know, and has impact on, on nature. So it has these, there are these, there are these relationships, informational relationships. I mean, uh, that that exist, and you could make machines be sort of a part of that. You know, you can build machines or computers, um, like robots or whatever, that respond or like part of this chain um, of, of information that the world is 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 um, is, is made up of. And so, um, you know, and he came out of a very specific kind of experience that he had during the war, which was that. He was he was recruited during World War II to create a a, um, a, a firing mechanism that could uh, predict um, the movement of, a, of an aircraft. So it, it's a ground air like basically um, uh, cannon, right? That could 
shoot down enemy aircraft. Uh, there was a really big problem because uh, Nazi Germany was doing these like bombing raids over 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 England, uh, and it was you know it was very hard to 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 shoot them down because you know uh, because if you fire if you fire something from a, from a cannon. It takes a certain amount of time to fly to to its destination, and so by that time, because the airplane, these fighter jets were so fast, it they you know you could you didn't know where they were going to be in thirty seconds into the future or a minute into the future, right? And so he was put on this task, a secret project that could figure out a way if you can use machines and early, this early computer technology to predict uh, with some where the, that aircraft will be in the future, and so. He, his work on cybernetics came out of that. So he came up with this idea where, you know, you, you have a machine that's, that's controlled by a person who, and who's aiming it and, and pointing it at something. And then through various uh, signals that it's getting from, from um, the aircraft about its movement and things like that, it can, it essentially, you know, swivels the, the turret, you know, in anticipation of where it'll be. And then that's where the, that's where the, that's where the human operator fires, and so you have this sort of machine that's coupled with with a, with a person, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this way of, and they and together they are much more powerful, right, than they would be alone. Um, and so this machine makes a person actually see predict the future, you know, on some level, and it's a very specific kind of way. Uh, it makes them like uh, God, you know, on some very minor, it's very small scale. You could see a minute into the future where, where that where that airplane will be, and so it made him start made him think about creating these sort of systems where where you have a machine and a, and a human being coupled together, and that's what cybernetics was. It's a study of the of these systems, uh, and you know why he was he was uh, it was so he wrote the book in I believe it was 1948. Cybernetics came out, and um, and it was a huge hit. It was a bestseller. Despite it was be, being like all full of mathematical formulas and things like that, because it, and it was and, and, and it was a it was a huge hit in military circles because it it what it did it was it showed that you could create you could create um, machines that would almost you could almost start to to write people you know out of out of the out of out of warfare you could create. The machines that could be much more efficient than people, you know, uh, you could replace people. They they wouldn't get tired. You could you could have you could have uh, intelligent systems where you could have actually machines potentially thinking about or understanding language and then transcribing intercepts, uh, decoding them, you know, um, on, you know, automatically without the need to have people sit there and label over these things. That you could create intelligent machines that could that could um, take human capability and sort of extend it and expand it. Uh, and uh, create cyborgs, you know, and uh, on this very, you know, like in this very kind of, you know, ste- in this very kind of steampunk way, right? It wasn't like, you know, it's not a cyborg that's that you see <laughs> yeah. on like Deep Space Nine or something, <laughs> but like uh, it's not the Borg, but it's more of a, you know, like a, actually a, a mechanical contraption that a, you know a person is sitting next to, totally. an electromechanical contraption, because this is the nineteen, the late forties and early fifties, and so he inspired this whole. Um, way of looking at the world and looking at computers and looking at, at human beings actually because if you think of the whole world as an information network and an information machine then we are just information networks and we're information machines and then computers are also information machines so actually we're a kind of advanced computer right and so so if we're an advanced computer and we have these very rudimentary computers that we're just beginning to tinker with 
then we can actually build much more complex computers that begin to mimic people and begin to take over some of the functions that people normally took and, and can do it much faster because you can run calculations much faster. You can, you don't, computers don't get tired. Computers can be deployed in all sorts of environments that people can't exist in uh, and all these things. So like it, 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 it really, it really um, uh, fired the imagination uh, of the military industrial complex because uh, they could see that, uh, that weapons could be automated. Mm-hmm. And um, and and their power could be vastly expanded. And, and America, if it if it if it uh, stayed ahead in this sort of cybernetics arms race, if it was the one that dominated, then no other military would be able to challenge it. You know, then the Soviet Union already the Cold War was was beginning to uh, to heat up. The Soviet Union couldn't necessarily couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't challenge America American power. Uh, and so, you know, cybernetics and Norbert, Norbert uh, Wiener were these really instrumental. Um, Things to the, the internet that we use today, or just, just most technology, actually computer technology. But what was interesting about him is that he immediately turned against his own creation, uh, because he was this, um, because he's understood that, you know, these computer systems, these information systems, they would give power to the people who controlled them. Yeah. And so um, he didn't see them as like, you know, he saw that they had a liberatory potential. They 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 could be in theory used for the general uh, betterment and, and for the benefit of mankind on, on, on some kind of bigger level. But, but he understood that unless the political system and, the, and, and politics were reformed or actually radically altered, uh, unless you know, uh, America wasn't just in pursuit of, 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 of profit and, and, uh, and, and global domination, then these, these systems would, would be put to that use. So if, if the culture, the political culture was about uh, you know, money and, 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 and amassing power, then the, the, these systems would be uh, put to, the, to that use. And so, like, just a few years after writing his the seminal work, uh, Cybernetics, he wrote another book, very cool book. I even recommend that people read it because it's, it's actually surprisingly, um, surprisingly modern. Uh, it's called The Human Use of Human Beings. <laughs> and he... Um, and, and that's how he kind of saw these new cybernetic systems. He saw that human beings would, be use, would, be de- would deploy these information systems and these computer systems to use human beings even more effectively, to exploit people. And he saw how his cybernetic ideas were not just favored by the military and were already being you know, put to use to develop you know, artificial intelligence, as they call them now. Back then, it was, that was just cyber, called cybernetics. Yeah. Um, but also... Um, Auto manufacturers uh, were wanted to depl- to deploy these ideas to create, to automate factories, to automate assembly lines, and he saw like you know this is again this is like early fifties, and he saw that uh, that if this would keep going the way that it, that it, that it, it was already at the time, that it would create mass unemployment on, on you know, unemployment on a mass level that it would create people who are, are completely unnecessary to, to society, mm-hmm. who have no role in it. Who are not part of the productive process of society? Everything would be automated, so you know manual labor would be automated. People who worked on, in factories would just be thrown away. And um, he warned of a that this will bring about a catastrophe that we have like a, of a kind that we have not yet seen before in, in, in modern societies because it's going to create mass un- unemployment and mass poverty. And, uh, um, and uh, I mean, we are seeing what he predicted back then. And he turned against it and he even tried to, to, to work with labor unions <clears throat> at the time 
to to warn them to say like, look, this is what's coming down the pipeline. There's going to be yeah. this automation, um, and you know, automation in, in not like the sense of you know full communism automation where everybody reaps the benefits of that of the, of, of of that um, of that, and and we all live fuller lives without having to work you know all the time. But it would be automation in the service of you know concentrated capital, and basically um, workers are going to get screwed, and they're going to get screwed pretty quickly, pretty soon. So you better like know what's coming. And so he was put on the uh, on the FBI subversive list, and he was being so um, uh, Jagger Hoover like uh, you know tracked him, and he was like he was considered <laughs> subversive, and he refused to do any kind of military contracting mm-hmm. after that. And so he was really a, became a pariah, and in he was he was sat at MIT, which is like the center of you know military industrial research. It's basically like a you know a military university. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he sat there. He was one of the most influential, one of the best known, one of the most brilliant people there. And he like refused to have anything to do with military research after that, and uh, and uh, became this old kind of crank and lost his eyesight, and you know slowly kind of faded and died. But um, you know the guy that created this or the creative intellectual framework for the creation of these computer systems <clears throat> was also the guy who was the first to warn about them. Yeah. Uh, and saw where, where it was headed. Uh, and he, it was interesting. He said, like, look, a computer labor or automated labor um, is like slave labor because it has no rights. It could be, it, yeah. be, it can be worked forever yeah. to the ground, you know, to, until the, you know, the, the motherboard, you know, burns up. Like, you, a person cannot compete with slave labor, you know? Yeah. And so normal, normal workers cannot compete with that. And so the slave labor, the computer slave labor is going to win and mm-hmm. it's going to take over everything. And unless we radically change society, we're all screwed. And, <laughs> yeah. and, in a, and, you know, here we are, you know, with, uh, yeah, with uh, mass unemployment and mass poverty and in large part because of automation, but not just automation on its own, but because of the political culture that surrounds automation that doesn't spread out the benefits of automation equally, right? Yeah. Uh, and the benefits of increased efficiency in, in, like in, in our productive work, workplace. And stuff. It's funny that, um, you know, that used to be the way that they would refer to it as cybernetics, which implies that humans play a role, a significant role, you know, in sort of enhancing human abilities or, or things like that. But I feel like the way we talk about things now, it's all about AI, which in a way completely, I mean, not completely, but would eliminate the need for a human, you know, human consciousness. So it's interesting how it actually worse it's gotten since then, where now mm-hmm. it doesn't even seem like there's not very many people talking about, you know, unless we're talking about like military mech suits. No, you but you're see right. Much, you don't yeah. see much in that area anymore. You no, know? you're totally right. I mean, it's like... Even, in, even for like drone piloting is now, they're already starting to move over to like fully automated or algorithmically driven systems and stuff like that that makes sense i mean because you're writing the person out i mean that's what he was sort of talking about yeah right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so before it was about because you needed the human operator to some degree you know mm-hmm. um but again the more advanced these these systems get the more complex the, the programming and you know the more complex there's the you know, quote quote unquote intelligence because these these systems are not intelligent and and i don't think they will ever will be and because they're not you know they don't have their own they're you know they're not they're not um I don't know. They're um, they're only a function as f- they can seem complex and intelligent, but but they can only function with the parameters of the programming. You know, um, but yeah, you write out people completely, and like, and it's a strange it's a strange system, right? It's a strange society that like tries to write out its own people out of its own 
yeah, it's again. There's no place for people anymore because unless you're you, unless you're part of this machine that makes things, or uh, unless you can be used in some way and exploited, like you're not really necessary, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's very weird. It's yeah, we've gone completely to to the other side now. Um, um, yeah. In a way, it makes some of these like dystopian, and, and I won't I won't stay on this topic for too long. But just it just made me think about like some of these dystopian sci-fi stories, you know, about humans. You know, like one that comes to mind is the Matrix using a human mm-hmm. as a human battery. But I mean, maybe at some point we'll. It's like if they come up with some kind of computer brain interface, and it'll be like, well, do you want? Would you be willing to use your comp- your body as part of our computer farm? Yeah, you know. I mean, that I'm not saying that like that's when AI is going to really take over, but it seems like that might be our role at some point, where <laughs> just, people who can't, you know, who might not be able to contribute to this system, might be like, well. You know, my brain's a computer and it can be used for yeah. the cloud or whatever. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, it's, I don't know. I, <laughs> a I, horrible I, thought. I, 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 take, I, I take a kind of a, my, my position on the whole brain-computer thing is I don't, I don't think we're computers, you know. I mean, I mean we're clearly, compu- there's some information processing, right? But a computer is, you know, like, we are things that evolved over, 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 you know, over like millennia. Like, mm-hmm. came, evolved out of just, you know, just like this protoplasm, you know, like, uh, you know, we are very much embodied, uh, like we're not general purpose computers. You know, we were made very specifically to do certain things, to, to live in a certain environment. Of course, we're very adaptable and, and uh, that's part of why we're sort of so successful as a species, you know, and, and so successfully and so, so successfully destructive. We're very adaptable to a lot of different environments, uh, much more so than any, any other, I think, living organism, um, at least like multicellular uh, on earth, you know, and, uh, but I mean, like, we're not like, we're not a general purpose computer, you know, we're not like, I think that, you know, <laughs> if they ever like tr- replicate a, a human intelligence, they'll actually just build a human being, you know, mm-hmm. that's what it'll, it'll become. Like, like, look, we, we, we synthetically created a, a computer that's totally human, you know, it's, <laughs> and it's like, you look at it, it's a human being. Yeah. Like it was, it was that was actually 3d printed. <laughs> In like in exactly the same configuration and has exactly the kind of same cellular structure that a human being does. And it's like, ah, okay. <laughs> like in the same way that, you know, you can sort of model a, uh, um, you know, a hurricane on a computer, right? And you can really model it and, you know, you can create like, okay, this is how it's going to act. And you can model all the different little forces inside, the, you know, the, what would make a hurricane, all the environmental factors that go into it. But to actually create a hurricane, you actually have to create a hurricane. Mm-hmm. You know, like it actually has to be a hurricane in the world. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's like you can, you can make, a, make a, a, a human being that acts, that seems to be a human being. But like, what does that mean? You know, right? <laughs> like, so they can fool you. They can, you know, you can be fooled that they're human. They, they seem very human. But like, I, again, it's a very, it's a, I mean, it gets into, into the, the outer limits of philosophy and, and uh, philosophy of mind that uh, basically has been stuck in, stuck in the same place for, you know, like almost 100 years or 60 years. Uh, like, what is a mind? You know, what is, it, what is consciousness? Uh, what does it mean? Like, is it just, is it real? Is it not real? Uh, are we just delusional about our own consciousness? You know, or, uh, well, just there, on a side does a note. rock have consciousness? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does a, does your iPhone have consciousness? You know, like I don't know, but I do think that something you know what makes us us is just us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, 
actually the, the the down to the way that we're made uh, on a cellular level and uh, and in the, the the thing the way that we've evolved over over uh, to, into our present present state. Um, so yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, like you imagine like a, a dog, like a computer dog, you know. Like, <laughs> like you could probably fake one, you know, yeah. at some point. Yeah. But That's like, is it, does it think story, like a dog? Yeah. Like, yeah. is it, it does it have dog consciousness? <laughs> I, I don't know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see i guess we'll find out soon yeah <laughs> getting into some getting into some <laughs> yeah i mean that's the problem with talking about silicon valley is now even people like elon musk are talking about the holographic universe oh, yeah. theory and stuff like that so you know i mean They've, there's they watch quantum computers you know they're being developed by google and you know yeah. i don't know how much of that stuff is just like pr you know sci-fi kind of like look how futuristic we are you know how serious it is but i i i i take a very skeptical view of it you know they've been trying to invent ai for from the very beginning i mean that's what cybernetics is it's intelligent machines mm-hmm. and uh just for some for some for some reason cybernetics like the term fell out of favor and, and it, it became artificial intelligence you know that's what like that's the acceptable way of calling calling cybernetics but uh i don't know i mean you know it's like Okay, quantum computer. Okay, so you have a computer that has m- more than one state. It's not just like one and zero, but it has like you know, you know, a lot of different states. So you can process, you can actually process things very, very quickly. So it just speeds up processing power. Yeah. Okay, great. You, know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you can get like a core of, you know, like you can run like a multi-core computer with you know a thousand cores. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's not a quantum computer, but it has. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just like so you can crack encryption faster. You can solve problems faster, but like. The question is, what are your fucking problems? You know, <laughs> like Google has all this power; it has a global network computer, so all of its computers are actually networked together. Mm-hmm. You know, and its data centers and like small computers, but they're all networked together, so they can operate in in unison, right? Like a multi-processor uh, network computer. And what is it doing, right? Like, what is its function? It's like runs to show us ads, to show us targeted ads. You know, how how pathetic is that? <laughs> I mean, all the other stuff that it does, you know, tracking us and you know, but that that's still plugged into the function of showing us advertisement. You know, exactly. Yeah. It is it is the most it was the most banal, most depressing thing in the world. You know, like you here you have this giant corporation, giant, you know, just unlimited resource resources. It's tied tied to the national security state. It's you know it runs these massive server farms. You know, these supercomputers can do all this cool shit, right? And at at its core. <laughs> It's just an ad agency, you know? Yeah. It's really depressing. Yeah. So, like, what are you going to use the quantum computer for to show us even more ads? You know, yeah. like, really target them really well, you know? Yeah, to be like, able to scan our emails faster. Yeah, like, or- <laughs> it's so like you know, it'll, 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 it'll do it, you know, a fraction of a second after you send it, you know, rather than, like, <laughs> yeah. two seconds afterwards. It's, I mean, it's... it's it is really depressing. That's what I mean about, about all this, like... Yeah, and it is PR, I think, you know, because it's always about keeping us uh, enthralled to the next like next invention to the next um, breakthrough. And so that we think this, the technology is really moving forward and it's going to open up all these possibilities. Yeah. But look at the possibilities that we have now. Mm-hmm. There's enough power, computing power to do, you know, I don't know what, but there's more than enough computing power. I mean, look, we're like surrounded by computers in this room, right? In your room here, <laughs> but, but where you go out, you're surrounded by computers. You're just there everywhere. And like, what do they, what do they do? They do nothing very interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and all the other cool, cool stuff that they do had already kind of been, exi- you know, existed. You know, movies, and you know, they just get more and more complex. But like the the format 
it still hasn't really been, you know, and things haven't really changed. There's nothing new in the world, really, you know. And so I don't know. It's I'm, I'm very down on, skeptical of these promises of innovation and promises of, course. of the next the, le- the next leap in technolo- technological, you know, you know um, t- um, uh, power and whatever. Yeah. You know, one of the companies that gets sort of uh, tarred the most from this era of early computing is IBM. Hmm. And of course, a lot of people relate it back to the Holocaust, um, how its systems were used to database people in concentration camps. But you brought up some other interesting examples that could also be interpreted as nefarious for using their databasing technology around the same time, you know, even after. But talk about some other examples of this and just the larger idea of sort of when, not just IBM, but like how these databases started to be used for mm-hmm. political purposes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, you know, so one of the, the realizations that I came to uh, when writing this book, because I, I never even thought I'd go in this direction, really. So the thesis that, I've, that, that came out of all my research in, is that computer technology on a very basic level is about surveillance, surveillance, and it's about management. So it's about surveilling the world and then giving whoever is uh, going to use that data kind of a better handle on, on on what to do in the world. So getting information about the world and people and you know business processes, and then so you can take action on that intelligence. And so IBM is a perfect example of that. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, the dark side of that is in, in the Holocaust and was used by Nazi Germany to more efficiently run its slave labor um, system um, and to, um, to sort of manage its labor pool, among, among other things, but also to, to uh, better isolate people with, you know, like, uh, who are Jews from, 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 uh, from uh, various records um, that you could isolate people with just a qu- who are a quarter Jewish, who might not even be Jewish, who might not even realize that they're Jewish. But like, if you go back in time and look at when IBM technology was developed, the punch card technology, um, it developed in in the late 19th century in America by this guy by an American by this guy named Herman Hollerith. And when, were you saying he was inspired by sort of the what had already existed for a while, which is like train train ticket punchers? Yeah. So he he was he was in essence contracted by the U.S. Census to mm-hmm. come up with a better way of counting the census to enumerate enumerating the census because you got to do the census every ten years. It's in the Constitution. You got to carry it out every ten years. And at that point, they. It took so long to do the census that it was, you know, they already it was already time to do the next census by the time that they were, they hadn't even finished counting the last one because wow, okay. they were doing it by hand. <clears throat> and so he he came up with this way of um, encoding the census inform, encoding the census information um, better so that it can be counted automatically. And he came up with this punch card. Yeah, and you're right, exactly. Like his idea was that a punch card was like a portrait of a person. So, and a punch card has little fields, you know, and little markings, and you punch each of those little boxes based on the, their attributes, based on their age, based on their sex, based on, you know, let's say how much they make, you know, what their, what their ethnicity is, things like that. So you, you can actually punch out a, 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 you know, a paper portrait, like, but it's like a paper digital portrait of, of, of a person. And, and then that punch card then stands for that person. Uh, and then they, that punch card can go into, into you know, the stack, and then he invented a contraption that you can, you know, feed these punch cards into, and then they can be counted very quickly. Obviously, because it's just, just it's a mechanical, you know, ticker. But also, you can sort uh, those punch cards based on attributes. So, if you want to find, you know, uh, people who are, 
you know, have like overlapping uh, attributes like who are, you know, felons, who, you know, uh, were born in, in, in New York and, you know, who, who are orphans. You know, you could like run all of your, you know, census data through, through that and basically isolate the people who match that criteria. And so mm-hmm. he developed that technology and, and it was first put to use in 1890, to count the 1890 U.S. Census. And it was the first kind of computer, you know, because it allowed you to um, digitize data on, into these punch cards and then to manipulate that data in very pretty sophisticated ways at the time that was unfathomable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the reasons why um, it was... Um, one of the reasons how, how why the U.S. Census was getting so long is because at the time um, there, was, there was a huge freakout over over uh, uh, immigration into America from uh, from Southern Europe and from 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 Eastern Europe. So um, the sort of the Anglo-Saxon elite of uh, of America were, were extremely worried that the 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 pure sort of genetic superiority of Americans that was hard won by them coming to this new world and struggling for survival, you know, and through a, Dar- a Darwinian process, you know, they, they became the, they, they became to, they gave, they became to embody, uh, they came to embody the best genes in the world, you know, so even there was like a pyramid at the time and Americans stood at the top of the genetic pyramid, Anglo-Saxons like sort of, you know, their, their ancestors, you know, from, from Britain were like when were, were below one level <laughs> and then there were the Germans and then it went down from there, you know, um, and so, uh, and so, um, you know, America was supposed to have the most pure genetic stock out of all nations in the world. And here there was a sort of influx, huge, uh, huge flow of immigration uh, coming from these sub, sub-racial groups, you know, like Italians and Eastern Europeans. And, and like, there was a lot of fear at the time that, um, I don't know, they were going to, they were going to mess things up. And so uh, you, you, it was, there was the birth of eugenics and the kind of a eugenicist movement where uh, the p- racial purity of America was, became extremely important suddenly, and uh, and <clears throat> and it was the emergence of this new racial science, and the racial science required data about the people, uh, uh, about the population, and so the the census at the time became an instrument to collect more and more sort of uh, racial data about the American population, about the people who were coming into America, and so that's why the census got so big that it took so, so long to count. So before it was pretty simple and it could be countered pretty quickly, but there was more and more data about the the, the racial makeup of, of of Americans in the census, and so the IBM punch card was essentially inve- invented to count that data. So mm-hmm. the IBM the punch card was very much intertwined with uh, racial science and yeah. racial profiling and and eugenics mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this obsession with racial purity, um, and of course. It didn't. It became it, that was that was one of the forces that drove it. But of course, it became much more. Uh, it was a it was a multi-use technology. It could be used for by railroads. Railroads really got into it uh, because they could they could organize their, their schedules and and sort of timetables much better. And they could they could they could use it to track shipping. And so, uh, large businesses and corporations were really into 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 IBM technology from the very beginning because it could allowed them to yeah, manage their business processes much faster. The army, uh, the U.S. Army, was very much into it as well because it could manage their, um, keep track of their, um, of their manpower, like, you know, the number of people that had, who's on sick leave, you know, what kind of diseases they had, so they could, you could again manage uh, um, 
manage the military uh, much more effectively. <clears throat> IBM was then, of course, put, used by um, FDR when he when created the Social Security program. It was basically run by IBM. It couldn't have been done by anyone else. So IBM powered, you know, welfare, mm-hmm. and and it ran on it ran on IBM. It was like a it was a it, that was it that was the computational power. <laughs> so on the one hand, you could use it to for eugenics and to do this creepy kind of racial science and try to figure out like you know if America is being infected by by uh, by bad genes, but at the same time, you could use it for good and to run you know to give people. Uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, keep them uh, alive and happy in their old age and by, by, through a welfare system. Um, and so, you know, IBM has this sort of dual thing where it shows that it can, you know, computer technology can be used for good or, or bad, right? It's not like, it's somewhat, it depends on, the, uh, depends on the culture and the society that uses the technology. <clears throat> and it could also be used by, to run slave labor uh, camps by Nazi Germany. And so all these things are happening at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you had an interesting quote in your book from somebody from, I think it was a Nazi official proclaiming like their excitement at the opening of the IBM factory. Yeah. They were aware of at the time of how valuable that could be or what they were planning on doing. Or Yeah, no, it's something. really creepy. I mean, you, um, I mean, the, the whole like Nazi IBM connection is really an interesting one. And the story, I mean, I recommend people read, um, 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 What's the book? IBM and the Holocaust. Yes, IBM and the Holocaust. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I have a copy. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great book. It's a bit like it's a yeah, it's pretty dark. I mean, there, so there was this one. Um, this, so when IBM subsidiary opened up a new factory in Berlin, um, um, the head of the subsidiary um, was in the Nazi party, and he he had, they had this huge kind of ceremony with Nazi flags uh, hanging in the factory. They had all the like all wow. the top Nazi officials in there. Yeah, and um, he gave a speech where he explicitly, he saw himself as like, he saw statistics and IBM as a weapon, as, as Hitler's, well, not a weapon, as, as, as surgical tools. So Hitler, uh, their Fuhrer as the, as the physician who goes into society and looks at its racial sort of structure yeah. and finds the, the disease. And, and then it is up to, and then he uses as his, as his tools sort of IBM uh, tabulators to to find the disease you know and then uses statistical analysis which is done in conjunction with IBM technology to cut out you know the the, the rot and, and 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 make the sort of German body politic uh, you know healthy again I mean mm-hmm. so he gave the speech when he where he talks about himself and talks about IBM subsidiary as an instrument of hit of 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 um, of uh, of the Führer and like of of his uh, desire to cleanse society, uh, and so it's a pretty it's a pretty creepy uh, you know pretty disturbing thing, and that was like and of course um, you know um, as that book explains, IBM was actually profiting off of off of all of this business, even though it was already forbidden at the time from from I mean the two countries were at war, and so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, so there's a kind of an interesting um, wrinkle to that, but yeah, but they computer technology from the very beginning was about understanding, you know, people on a very individual level, but also on a, on a societal level, mm-hmm. uh, um, and managing that society in some way or fixing that society, and so so it, it the computers were used 
in a way that was in line with whatever political culture, you know, an ideology was in the country where they were being put to use, you know. And so in Nazi Germany, they were being put to use in helping purify the German population, you know, uh, finding the Jew, finding the even the sm some of the people with the smallest amount of Jewish blood in them and Jewish heritage, and then of course then running slave labor camps in which they, these Jews were sent to. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, um, and of course, you know, IBM plays a big role in just about every, at every, every, every stage in, you know, computer development uh, and actually internet history. I mean, so the, the first radar defense system was, ran on IBM computers. A lot of the people who worked on that radar defense system, it was in the 1950s, went on to work for ARPA to develop the ARPANET, ARPANET, which then became mm -hmm. the internet. Which I'm going to ask you about next. And then, yeah. and then of course, uh, <laughs> IBM was contracted by, to build the first uh, commercial backbone it was the federal government paid it to create the first uh, national backbone, uh, internet backbone that then became part of the internet that we use today. And so, like, yeah, IBM is there from from the very be from the very beginning. It's been the center of, um, yeah, computer and 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 uh, then internet development as well. So we've been talking for almost an hour, and we haven't even gotten to the actual. I, early iteration of the internet yet um but <laughs> I'm a, yeah i guess i'm just a, yeah like a gas bag you know just, <laughs> no it's a wind bag. it's great no we, we we've covered a lot of ground i mean i i don't think most people know anything about the sort of the the way this has evolved over time so i think it's extremely fascinating i guess just explain how the arpa program so explain how the arpa program evolved into what became known as the arpanet and exactly what that was and how it relates to the internet today. Well, yeah. So, <clears throat> so the ARPANET program comes out of a couple of different uh, ARPA programs that started in 1962. And they were started by this MIT uh, mathematician called J.C.R. Licklider. He was brought in to, um, to try to figure out how, what kind of technology uh, the military would need to create a modern command and control and communications uh, network. So like a kind of a modern um, management system for the military. And so at the time, computers were still these big boxes, you know, that like occupied entire rooms and they were little more than um, giant calculators. You had to like feed stuff into them, either like a technician, you know, you had to like write out computer code and these punch cards, you know, and then like you had give they gave that to a technician you know, worked with the computer and the technician would like sit there in his lab coat and like feed that stuff in there. That'd be the program. So you code the computer and then the computer then would run that, that code and they would like spit out a result, you know? So it was a very, um, it was, it was like a, ca a calculator, but it was just giant. It had to be operated, you know, in special, in a specialized language, mm -hmm. uh, and operated by technicians. And so, <clears throat> in, in, in some circles at the time it was, it was believed that you needed to to run a, a global empire, a modern global military empire, you needed a new kind of communications system that could allow military commanders to sort of communicate commands and to make sure that everything's being carried out and to understand what the hell is going on in all these different places around the world. You know, you're fighting a war again. You're, it's from, from Southeast Asia to Latin America. You're like, there's all these different insurgencies. You're fighting a, a cold war also. There's, you know, nuclear weapons potentially. There's, you know, you're watching for... Uh, uh, nukes, you're watching for, uh, you know, b bombing raids, or you're watching for uh, missile launches, you know, all these things. Like, you have this chaotic world, and how do you know what's, what the hell is going on? You know, until the until ARPA developed this sort of modern um, computer technology, it was all essentially done by, you know, like, telephone. 
Mm-hmm. You, like you call someone and be like, hey, what's going on over there? Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know <laughs> let me find out. And then, they, you know, call up the next guy who's sitting, in, you know, somewhere else. And then it goes down the line. And by the time he gets back to the general, it's like, you know, there's a game of telephone. Again, you know, there, so you, 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 you don't have a sense of what's going on in the world, you know. And so Lick Lighter was essentially called to ARPA to create to figure out what kind of technology would be, need to be created in order to have this kind of system because it wasn't even fathomable to a lot of people. It wasn't, you could, how do you, what, what, what computer network, computer technology would you need, you know? And so he came in and he started sort of funding different efforts um, through these two programs. One was called Command and Control uh, uh, Research and there was called, the other one was called Behavioral Sciences. Uh, and they were interconnected. So the command and control research, he started funding immediately networking projects that, that could connect different computers together. He started funding interactive computer projects that would create uh, computer technology that a person could just intuitively interact with. So the stuff that we take for granted now, like the desktop or the laptop, I mean, ha- hadn't even yet been invented. So ARPA was instrumental in underwriting research that would create these technologies. I mean, like the, 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 the personal computer was created by ARPA and it came out of this program that was, headed, that started, by, that was started by JCR Licklider. And so he, and so he, um, he um, launched all, all these different programs, but underlying it all, you know, was, so there was this idea that you needed to create a general purpose interactive computer technology and then that could, that technology could be used for whatever reason you want it to be used for you can use it for you know managing and uh, sort of a modern military you can be you can use it for uh, like a you know an analyst a military analyst could use it to analyze uh, like dissident movements and to, to feed in uh, information on you know, political protesters or whatever or you could be a Wall Street analyst who is trying to analyze markets and predict markets or you could be a climate scientist and you, you need tools that could ingest things about you know data about climate and uh, so like these were on on one on the one on one level they were general purpose computer tools but of course the reason they were being funded and the uh, an aspect of all of these programs had like military application of course right and so right from the very beginning there was an interaction between the counterinsurgency part of the of ARPA and sort of the computer development and, and computer technology development side of ARPA. And so they were intermingled. So when Licklider was uh, funding some early um, computer research, he was also funding um, like at UCLA uh, projects that could predict the behavior of, of political systems and countries that could even like model and predict human behavior uh, and like brain processes, you know. So the idea was that you could, you had these computer network tools that you could, that you would create uh, and they'd be connected and people could use them, but then you also needed programs that you could run on these things that could be useful to the military and to, to America's sort of counterinsurgency uh, doctrine at the mm-hmm. time. And so there, were like, there was like a, a dual track, essentially. On the, on the on one track was about creating a general purpose, uh, networked, um, interactive computer, right? Which is what we have now. On the, and, and the other track was that creating tools that could be useful to the military that could run on these computers, right? And, and these things uh, involved, um, you know, like logistics systems for the Air Force that could, using the ARPANET or using these computers, uh, they could 
you could you could you could like load you know uh, uh, like a manifest you know so go these are the things that we need to go they, they, to go on you know to out to Vietnam and you know you send it to an air base that's far away, um, and then you could Im- immediately communicate between different parts of the air force that they could send the data back and forth to each other so it wouldn't be like calling it in on a list or mailing it you know which would normally have been the, the way that they do it by hand by you know they would call people on the telephone and like read lists off so you could create now a network a computer network and tools that the military could use on that network, right? Of course. Yeah, I mean, just it's pretty obvious, right? And so in the, in the internet, in the, in the history of the internet, most histories of the internet that you read, you get like the one track, which is the general purpose computing track. You don't get the other track mm-hmm. of, of why this general purpose computer was yeah. being funded. It's almost just like, oh, the military made this great technology and now they're just giving it away to the public. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of like, was my understanding of the internet when I was first on it. I kind of knew a little bit about the history, but... I don't think most people, yeah, most people don't realize um, that there was always a motive. I mean, that there, you know, there had to have been some kind of motive. I mean, the military is funding <laughs> a technology, for, development of a technology for some reason. Now, that technology once comes online and becomes sort of commercially uh, viable, you know, and becomes privatized and, you know, companies begin to produce it and whatever, then it has other other aspects to it, right? It has other uses that might not be at all related to you know, its original military uh, purposes, you know, or, or, or might have the uses, but it might just be like, there might be always a duality to it. Mm-hmm. But so the, the reason why the modern personal network computer was developed by ARPA was to give, you know, military commanders a kind of total information awareness. You know, that was mm-hmm. at least the idea, the, the dream, you know, that's, it was just when you were first beginning to develop just the, even the technology, you know, like, oh, a mouse, you know, like you're taking baby steps towards that. But the, the dream from the beginning was to give them awareness of the world, right? And to, to provide tools that could ingest data from all sorts of places to analyze that data and potentially even predict future behavior, you know? Um, and um, just like you could bug the battlefield. But again, at first you have to create the basic, basic underlying technology that that software could run on. Yeah, and so there was there was a dual track, and so what Licklider did in 1962, he kind of set up the program, the Command and Com- Control Research Program, that um, ended up spawning um, the ARPANET seven years later, and then he and then he left and he went back to the private sector um, to work, and then so it kind of ground on like this program for for several years until. Uh, the the basic computer technology was was created that could then be connected by computers by by the network, and so and so that's when the ARPANET went online is when you could you could you could start to connect actually technology that 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 was developed for it you know um, I always like it when people dig up old uh, news uh, like investigative reports especially tv news ones and you found something in your book that i've i never heard about and i'm actually wondering now if you've actually seen it um which was on june 2nd 1975 nbc correspondent ford rowan um this is actually i'm taking a quote from your book uh ford rowan appeared on the evening news to report a stunning expose about arpanet with and and apparently some something specifically about the CONUS Intel spying operation. Now, I guess just describe what this report was. When did the, what time period? You know, the time period that this was in was around the same time as the Church Committee, or a little after. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, what you know, what was the climate like at that time? And 
it actually almost seems it, I like to, to imagine that they would have been running a story like this back then just seems really shocking. So h- how did this guy even come across this information and what was sort of the tone and the angle of this expose? Oh yeah. So what you're describing is a report uh, from 1975 um, that talked about how um, the re- reporter uh, discovered through a bunch of different sources, uh, including people at the white house, um, uh, several intelligence agencies and and ARPA uh, that uh, the ARPANET that had been online at that point for six years was being used to spy on Americans, on millions of Americans. So, you know, the ARPANET became the internet, but at the time, the significance of of, of the ARPANET was not yet apparent. You know, it would take like another two decades for for it to start to appear in most American, you know, homes. So, but what Rowan was describing back then in 1975 was that the internet, the, early, the first version of the internet, was being used to surveil Americans, um, and it was specifically digitizing surveillance files that had been uh, analog surveillance files that are kept on paper and things like that, digitizing them, and then putting them in a format that could be shared among uh, intelligence agencies and it could be processed, could be analyzed, could be could be you know compiled into into dossiers could be could be mapped out for social relationships and things like that so it took it took intelligence that was collected that had been collected um actually in the in the in the 60s and going into the 70s that was actually part of an illegal uh, US army uh, surveillance operation called Konos Intel that was revealed in 1972 and it led to all these uh, hearings um, about uh the illegal nature of a, a, an army surveillance program that um, started in the mid '60s, and it was the reason it was started was because the uh, U.S. Army um, believed that there was a real insurgency that was happening in America. That the civil rights movement, that anti-war protesters were not like legitimate. Uh, that it were they were not Americans who had legitimate political grievances about their uh, about politics in America as, as they were as they were happening, but the, that these were foreign combatants essentially, or you know. F- Insurgents, domestic insurgents, being propped up or somehow controlled by a foreign power, the Soviet Union, and so uh, the army initiated this nationwide massive surveillance program. Uh, that just uh, Siri turned on while I was talking about this. Just so you know, it's pretty. Okay. It's, pretty it's pretty funny. I, don't, I keep forgetting to turn it off. I don't know why I keep forgetting to turn off Siri. Must be something strange. Why I keep forgetting to do that. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> so there was this nationwide surveillance program where essentially, if there was a you know a PTA uh, bake sale or like a, you know a, a get together at someone's home that had more than a couple of people, and there were you know, people were talking about the civil rights movement or 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 organizing against the war, it was there was one or more army undercover uh, agents surveilling that uh, meeting. And so it was nationwide involved thousands of uh, army uh, army um, personnel that were, you know, like cut their, you know, uh, try to grow up their hair and try to blend in into the sort of the radical population. And so they, they collected all these files and they were collected as, as it would later turn out illegally because they had, they were not empowered to, um, collect that kind of data on American citizens. And so it led to a bunch of, actually, congressional investigations in 1972, and the Army at the time promised that these files would be destroyed, that it was going to destroy um, all the data that it collected. It was, it was millions of Americans at the time uh, that they had in their files, and, and so that was the end of it. And what Rowan, Ford Rowan, the NBC reporter at the time, discovered was that, no, actually, at the, same, at the, at the, at the time, at the, at the exact moment that Army officials generals were telling 
uh, congressmen that they were going, they were, they were destroying the files. They were actually digitizing them using this new, strange kind of uh, new networking technology and, and the tools that were associated with the ARPANET. So the ARPANET was used to digitize these surveillance files and make them available to any intelligence agency in America. And so it was a huge um, scandal when he broke the story. Um, of course, think for us, it has special significance because we know that the Internet, you know, um, 30 years later, turned into this giant surveillance machine. And so what his story, in hindsight, tells us uh, is that surveillance was not something that was, like, came at some point later down the road. It wasn't like a corruption of the Internet. It wasn't a... Uh, it wasn't something that was you know, put in by the NSA at, at some point because it was you know, a corrupt government agency or, or it wasn't something that Google just decided to do on its own. That surveillance uh, of Americans was something that was baked into the technology from the very beginning. You know, going back to 1975, that was when the story was broke, but actually the, the digitization process happened in 1972, three years after the ARPANET came online. Um, and, and so... Yeah, I, I I did watch the clip, um, the actual footage. I saw it. Uh, it's really amazing. It was very hard to get. Uh, and what, what's amazing about it is it, it it was on the evening news. It was on primetime television, uh, talking about this surveillance network. <laughs> um, and they ran, and NBC ran two other segments uh, looking at this network and looking very very. Um, it, specifically at like the technical um, structure of it, why it was different from things that came before it. And the big innovation in the ARPANET, uh, as NBC described back then, was that you didn't need a big centralized database, right? So at the time, people were worried about, you know, big central database, you know, like a government database that, like, that can hold everything about you, you know, can... You know, it's like, let's say it's indexed by your social security number and it has all your work record, all your employment history, your medical records, or your you know, draft history, uh, your criminal history, you know, your ownership records of your, you know, your DMV records. So people were really worried that the government was building such a, such a, such mm-hmm. a database. And there were several attempts in the 60s that were essentially shut down or, and, and, and blocked by, in Congress because it was, it was very... Um, um, it was, a, it, was, it was kind of scandalous at the time because people were worried about the government having too much power over people by having all this data in one place. But what ARPANET showed was that you didn't need a centralized database. It showed that what you needed, what you needed is just a bunch of databases you know, spread around uh, all over the place in different military and intelligence agencies. All you really needed was a way to connect them together. Mm-hmm. And in fact, and that made it much more powerful because you didn't need to push through these big projects to create centralized databases. If you could share the data amongst each other, you know, like no one would even know what kind of data you really had because you transfer it, it's, it's in a different computer. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone, keep, someone is actually wants to look at and do an audit, well, you can transfer it to a different computer. It's not even on your computer anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it's like you, it makes it actually much more difficult to, to control from a political perspective. And so they address that in, in, the, in, the, in the reporting. They said, like, look, we don't know what is actually in these computers or how many files there are because we don't have a good way of, of finding out because there isn't like a place that you can go to to look. And so the reporting itself in 1975 caused a scandal and led to uh, congressional investigations of, of, of computer technology, of computer surveillance data technology, as they called it. And so um, 
Yeah, I was surprised when I found this. First, I found this in the, in the congressional uh, record uh, because it was read into in the congressional record as part of an investigation into um, uh, government surveillance technology. And what really surprised me about that episode uh, from 1975 was that you won't find it in any history of the, of the Internet. There are a bunch of histories, uh, history books looking at the Internet and looking at the origins of the Internet, looking at all the colorful characters that um, created it, all the engineers that worked for ARPA. Uh, the documentaries made on this, but like in in nowhere will you actually find this pretty central, I think, um, moment in the internet's history, when in 1975 it was already shown to be a surveillance tool that was spying on Americans. You know, we know that the internet is used to spy on Americans today, and it was being used to spy on Americans in 1975. So it's a pretty significant, you know, moment in history. To, to try to understand the technology and to understand what it became today, but it's been just deep sixed. I mean, it's gone, and I was really shocked to to, to find it. I, I had no idea. You know, it was just sort of like this little gem that 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 you could sort of see sparkling. And and um, and when I followed that thread, it really gave me an alternative. Began to um, expose an alternative history of the internet, a, a thread in the history of the internet that that has never really been told before. And more on this, just sort of the secret history of the internet, because even when the NSA scandal broke after Edward Snowden, um, you know, I guess I should say the the second major NSA scandal, um, because there's probably been many, many um, <laughs> over the over the decades. But after the Church Committee, which also involved, you know, things about how the NSA had overreached, um, there was a lesser known hearing by a Senator Irvin. Um, would you say that his committee established that the U.S. Army had amassed a powerful domestic intelligence presence and had developed a massive, massive system for monitoring virtually all political protests in the United States? Um, and I think you go on to mention how this guy was actually like anti-civil rights era. He was he was like a staunch constitutionalist, but he was actually bad on a lot of other politics. But he happened to actually stand up for something that like nobody else really seemed concerned with at the time. Um, am I, am I actually jumping back or is this something that uh, was you're a- jumping a little bit back? I think you're talking about the, um, the, the CONUS Intel intelligence sort of scandal. Okay. Um, I think, we, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, there's, you know, it's sort of like today on, on some level because you had the kind of the, the conservatives, you know, um, kind of the libertarian minded, you know, libertarian oriented, uh, congressmen, you know, who are, basically from the South and they were Democrats, but you know, they were like civil libertarians and even though they didn't believe in civil liberties necessarily for uh, African-Americans, you know, and, and, uh, but like they were, they represented, you know, the kind of the business thinking, you know, the thinking of, 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 of powerful people in America uh, and of uh, corporate interests. And uh, one of the things that, you know, corporations worry about is the government power, right? I mean, they do, they don't want the government to be too powerful in certain cases. They don't want the government to have, spy on Americas because it also means spying on, you know, potentially that power can be turned on corporations. It can be turned on, on the wealthy. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, it, it's, it's surveillance is also something that is, um, um, you know, um, is, is look, the IRS and IRS audits are a form of surveillance, right? Um, EPA, uh, monitoring of pollution uh, levels and, uh, of, you know, around, uh, let's say, refineries or factories, right? That's a form of surveillance. Mm-hmm. And that is a kind of surveillance that, you know, businesses don't like, right? 
So when we talk about surveillance, we always think about it something is ba bad and somehow like you know this sort of uh, just the the aura of surveillance is you know can't possibly be good because it's just there's a malevolent sort of force, the big brother that watches. But surveillance is something that it's actually political, so it depends on the politics, right? So surveillance could be actually a good thing when the surveillance is 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 deployed in the in the service of some kind of greater good. Uh, I mean, I'm personally you know for making sure that rich people pay their share of taxes and, and and more of them, you know. And so like there's you know there's you have to you have to have some kind of surveillance power that that the government has or society has that makes sure that that happens. And then of course if it doesn't happen, then you know there's some kind of punitive measures are taken, right? So so surveillance is. It's interesting, you know, like surveillance has this, has always had this sort of uh, right-wing um, uh, opposition to it, you know, government surveillance. And you see that with like people like Ron Paul or Rand Paul, mm -hmm. that they're like against the NSA and they're against, at least in, in theory, against some of these programs, you know, at least in, rhetorically. Uh, because I think from a, you know, from a, from a business perspective, you know, from a rich person's perspective, like, you know, like giving too much surveillance power to the, go to the government is not good. You know, it's, it's it, that, which means that it takes away your power as well. And so, yeah, so there was some, um, in the hearings about illegal army surveillance, you know, it was mostly, uh, targeted, um, left-wing movements and, uh, anti-war protesters and things like that, but it had opposition from more conservative forces, you know, conservative elements in, 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 in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very, actually kind of in line with what we see, what we see today, you know, you have like, uh, Rand Paul, you know, opposing drones and things like that. Even though he doesn't, he's not against drones being like used to take out people who rob liquor stores. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, it's a weird, it's a, it's, it's a funny kind of thing. You know, <laughs> it's like there's good drones and bad drones. Good drones take out, you know, people who, you know, pe take out people for petty theft. You know, the, the bad drones are the ones that are, I don't know, used abroad. <laughs> So there's an important turning point somewhere in this um, where you you ask the question uh, in your book, how did technology so deeply connected to war and counterinsurgency suddenly become a one-way ticket to global utopia? And there's a really important character here that you spend quite a bit of time on in your book named Stuart Brand. Um, and explain who he was and, and also break apart that sentence a little more about what you mean, how, you know, how did that transition take place from it being an obviously U.S. military grown apparatus to this sort of beacon of hope and freedom and even maybe even revolution um, for human society? Yeah. Well, you know, look, it's, in, in 1969, you had um, uh, students from MIT and Harvard um, come out and hold protests against the ARPANET, the network that became the internet a few decades later. Um, so the ARPANET went online in 1969, and that same year they went out to protest it. And they protested it because they saw it as not something that was going to bring liberation to mankind, but they saw it as a, as a, as a weapon of influence and control. They saw it as a surveillance network that would be used by the U.S. government to um, to um, attack and to to neutralize um, sort of progressive movements around the world, and so back when the ARPANET was being created, it was seen by um, a lot of people in America as something that was to be resisted, something that should be stopped, because if it 
it would if it would be able to if it was allowed to run its course it would create the beginnings of a surveillance society right um and yet if you go 30 years into the future from that moment um from like so this is 1969 to 1999 right you get something completely different you get you get people cheering on the spread of the internet they get you get people cheering on the internet as something that's going to revolutionize the world and and make make the world a better place it was going to it's going to equalize power between individuals and corporations and governments it was going to create global direct democracy where we we wouldn't even need to have governments mediating our interaction right we because we'd have direct rule on a global level you'd get rid of like corruption because everything would be transparent um you have technological innovation based on this network that would basically eradicate poverty all these things it was going to create a utopia so you went from you know people in 1969 looking at the arpanet and computer networks in general and computer technology in general as tools of of power uh to 30 years later having the same exact tools having the same exact web technologies seen as something as uh liberatory and um, um and utopian so like so in thir- in 30 years like there was a radical shift in the way that people looked at <clears throat> computer technology um and so you know it's a, it's actually an interesting it's a very interesting and, and and somewhat complicated story that involves a lot of different forces that went into it but um in essence you know it, that the the idea that society had about technology was rebranded you know and it was um when computers became big business and when the internet started becoming a big business it was rebranded into 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 something completely different from what it was they rebranded a military technology built by military contractors into 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 a tool of democracy and egalitarianism and one of the central characters to it to in the story one of the one of the sort of original rebranders of the internet was this guy named Stuart Brand pretty cool guy pretty interesting guy he's still alive he lives on a houseboat in South Salido Did you speak to him? For, for uh, I got in touch with him and he declined to um he declined to uh be interviewed um for the book mm-hmm. uh which is not surprising I mean one, because one of the things that I wanted to ask him was um your essential char- central uh, character essential player in helping reshape people's idea of technology as something uh, liberatory liber- liberatory and uh, and uh, utopian and something the tool that was going to empower the individual uh and create a better world how do you look at that in hindsight now that you know what the internet has become you know do you do you think that you're wrong do you think that you're do you think do you, where do you think you went astray or where do you think the internet's promise went astray mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe i should have sugarcoated my interview <laughs> request to to him a little was bit was it a kinder version of what you actually ended up asking him what you just said well Sounds i mean nice. i i mean Yeah, I mean I I mean I I put it I I think I made it maybe a slightly even more uh vague, you know, but I but I actually no, but I asked him directly like because yeah. look, the internet has become what is what it's become, you know, it's become you know, a mon- monopolized uh telecommunications infrastructure that mediates, you know, more and more of our, of our life and it's um at its core it's a surveillance machine, right? And it's and it's controlled by these very undemocratic forces and it's birthed some of the most powerful people in the world birth you know made it's created wealth and concentrated wealth the kind that we haven't seen since the railroad barons you know and so you know and so like that's obvious 
you know, to anyone who looks at the technology, you know, looks at the reality. And so, but like, but he sold, he presented the internet going back to, you know, to the early 70s as something that was going to actually destroy this world. It wasn't going to recreate it in a much more concentrated fashion, you know, that it was actually going to destroy the corporate world, this sort of concentrated corporate capitalism. Um, so yeah, he wouldn't talk to me, uh, but that's okay. I mean, I, I didn't expect him to, um, to be honest. And so, so he was interesting because he's um, the guy who hang out with, hung out with the Merry Pranksters. He dropped acid. He, he, um, uh, he was best known for creating the whole Earth Catalog, which was the sort of hippie Bible at the time, the Bible of the of the commune movement. Uh, it was like this sort of self help. Um, um, guide to the commune lifestyle so like you had like um, suggestions on how to build a commune what kind of structures to use what kind of tools you needed you had like advice columns for for from one commune you know to another and it was and it was like uh, reading suggestions that included you know like Norbert Wiener's cybernetics alongside Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead or, <laughs> and uh, um, and it was this it was, he, it was he was sort of this promoter and 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 um, um, promoter of this lifestyle, right? Of, of, of a counterculture that was believed that politics is dead. They didn't want to engage with politics like the new left was doing or, uh, or like civil rights um, activists were doing. They didn't want to engage with the old system to reform it and to make it better. They wanted to say, they said, it's, un, it's uncurable. Like the only way to really fix society is to create a new one. And they wanted to create a new society based on, on like a technological foundation that was kind of like a pr- early version of the internet, you know, like they, they believed that they could use uh, modern technology to create a, f- like a fair society. Um, and so he was very well known for being, publishing the whole Earth Catalog uh, and that it was very influential um, magazine and like, um, um, and he, in the end, like, that world, the commune world, was actually overlapped with the ARPA military contractor world because in a way that they were both um, chasing the same dream on some level, right? So the commune world wanted to create these new small-scale societies that were based on new kind of decentralized ideas like that you wouldn't have a high... A commune wouldn't be hierarchical. Everyone would be equal to everybody else, that you would have this sort of direct democracy on a local level, you know, on your commune level. And you know the, the, the some of the engineers who were creating the ARPANET were want, were thinking the same along the same lines, but they were thinking on a global scale. You're going to create a, this global telecommunication system that could allow people to communicate directly and create a, a digital global kind of commune, flat power, flat hierarchies, and things like that. And so there was an overlap, and so he brought his sort of commune idea of the world to the the the, the, the ARPANET world, to the ARPA world, to to ARPANET contractors, and he presented them in terms of not as like military contractors who were helping the military <clears throat> build a, a modern uh, command and control uh, technology for the military. But they were actually radicals who were um, creating technology that would make the military obsolete, that would actually, you know, uh, write it, that would put it out of business because if this networking technology would actually spread around the world, they would, you know, uh, 
foster uh, like a, a, a time of global peace and there would be no need for militaries or anything like that. So they were, in a way, the, the, the military was being taken for a ride because these guys got themselves somehow into inside the ARPA, ARPA and there were military contractors building the ARPA net, yet they were actually more radical than the anti-war protesters that were putting their, putting their lives on the line and, and protesting because they were f thinking about the future. They were thinking about a new way of, 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 of living that politics and like political parties, political candidates, all this stuff, like organizing on this kind of human level and reforming the system was like unnecessary. There's because there was going to be a new world of a global commune, digital commune. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was very central to, um, I mean, it sounds nice in a way <laughs> yeah. I can see, especially during that era, I'm trying to put myself back. I was born long after that, but just in that mindset, it yeah. sounds, it sounds very utopian. Yes, it you know? sounds great. I yeah. mean, and, and that his vision was really central because I think his vision, <clears throat> um, his vision is ultimately uh, the vision that Wired magazine promoted, and, and is ultimately the vision that we still live with today. You know, the, yeah. thinking of the internet as this global platform that <clears throat> allows people to communicate with each other, that allows us to bypass traditional power structures, uh, and to um, to um, to elevate you know, individual power to, to the level of, of like what, what would we normally associate with big, powerful corporations or, you know, governments and things like that. And so, yeah, it's, it sounds great. Um, the problem was of course that it, <clears throat> that vision of the internet, right. And vision of the ARPANET and vision of that technology, what it did is, is it ignored the power, power that actually st stood right underneath the ARPANET and ARPA and the mil military power that was financing it. And so you can only, uh, you know, believe in that vision if you ignored power, if you only saw just the, the 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 top layer of that technology, you know, and you didn't think about how it was going to be used once it was built, and because things are always power always uses whatever tools are there to enhance its own power, mm -hmm. and so it was this idea that this technology was somehow neutralized power, but it, but like so it so it so it ignored the nature of power, you know, the nature of economic power, because it, it, it thought that the technology would, 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 would be what uh, affected power, not the other way around, you know. That, they thought the technology had power on its own, but it doesn't. Technology only has power in as much as it's used by it or not, or used by some, some part of society. Yeah. So, so if like if, a, if there was a de popular democratic movement that was really powerful that was the driving force of a society, yeah, the internet could have maybe gone that way. But when you have a you know, national security state, the Cold War, and you know, concentrated capital and Wall Street as the things that are driving society, it you know even if it's a de decentralized system, you know, as they envision the internet, like that the decentralized system would not reform those po those powerful forces that it would be used by those powerful forces to 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 propagate and to to you know promote it, their their own power and so like uh i think it was that it's an it's a naive politically you know it sounds nice but in the end it's it's very dumb and, and and naive because it's it doesn't like actually think very deeply about the nature of of uh of power and how and how it affects the world you know yeah Pushing the timeline forward a little bit, when you get into the 1980s in your book, 
it's just really interesting to me how, you know, how at least just the culture from that time was like so in a lot of ways had reverted from like the seventies or just like society's understanding of how bad the U S you know, what evil the U S government was capable of and things like that. There were a lot of myths in the eighties kind of in some ways had resembled a little bit like the 1950s in terms of our popular culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even Apple, you, you mentioned this, um, that they had a commercial that was basically a parody of 1984, sort of explained that their computers would sort of liberate you from like the IBM first Apple IIe was some kind of liberating. It's a direct, it's a direct like line from Stuart Brand's idea of, of what computers are and computer networks are mm-hmm. to Apple. I mean, in fact, um, what's his name? Steve Jobs was a, a huge fan of, as a kid, he, he read, he was a little younger, so he, he read, but he read the whole Earth catalog. Uh, as as a kid, he didn't participate in the commune movement, but he to him it was like a Bible mm-hmm. because to him it showed that um, you could uh, create a new a new society using these sort of small scale technologies, you know, to create a commune that's separate from the world, that's basically off the grid, mm-hmm. and you could use like modern technology to create a a modern off the grid sort of you know small commune and and, and community uh, and so and so he saw like this 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 magazine that like like showed you all the cool like furnaces and all the cool new geodes- geodesic dome technology that you could use to like you know build your build your utopia out like in new mexico somewhere he was really like he explained that it was a very it was it was it was a powerful powerful influence on him uh, and it um inspired him like when he thought about Apple computer and when he like essentially envisioned and, and, uh, and um, the way that he thought about Apple computer was very much in, in those terms and in, in Stuart Brand's terms. And yeah, his, the first, the first um, ad that they put out, which is like basically this colorful woman, you know, you know, eighties kind of haircut, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like eighties sort of like fitness, fitness totally. uh, babe. Kinda, yeah. Like uh, was like was running with a sledgehammer and runs into this, movie theater where everyone's being like are zombies and watching this you know big brother on the screen she like smashes the screen and she's she's apple computer and these are like the regular kind of i don't know like um people in america and like that apple computer will help to <laughs> smash big brother and and, w- and make wake everybody up but you know they were they were kind of black and white and gray yeah and then suddenly they were i think became color which is interesting juxtaposition from how I remember them advertising. I don't know if you remember this. When the G4 processors first wow. came out, they advertised it by bragging that they were that they were tech, it was technology that was used by the U.S. military. Oh, I don't remember. And they had like tanks driving up to the Whoa. the G4 tower. Wow, something like that. But it was like using military that. imagery to advertise the. This was the after the Power PC processor, so yeah. it was like the next generation. Wow! But you also mentioned in the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but also in the year 1984 was William Gibson's Neuromancer, yeah, novel, yeah, and that coined the term cyberspace. But it was also a novel, and I haven't read it, so correct me if I'm wrong on this again. That it was also it was showing you how both sides of this potential future of of the internet could be used for a sort of like good and evil. Right, like yeah, like I mean, I'd say it was all evil in there because I mean, really? it's, it's okay. interesting because it became like it became the Bible of the cyber, cyber cyberpunk movement, yeah, yeah, because it defined this defined this sort of aesthetic, uh, cyberpunk. You know, your 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 sort of digital like hybrid cy- cyborg, you know, cool like samurai swords embedded in your you know embedded in your like 
you know, like a titanium skeleton modification, you know, with like uplinks and, you know, virtual reality uplinks in your spine, all this stuff. Like it, it, it was, I think it was, it was taken up by the subculture as something cool, like kind of like Mad Max, you know, that like the post-apocalyptic um, sort of um, aesthetic, like was taken up as something cool by the, by the, bur- by the burner. You know, a movement, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, man, it's post-apocalyptic, bro. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be, let's go party, you know? <laughs> it's like, uh, wait, uh, it's supposed to be a dystopia, guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, and so it's the same thing, I think, with um, with uh, um, Gibson's novel in that, like, he was looking at it as a dystopia. Yeah. Like, he said, I mean, in his interviews about it, he would talk about how, so, like, like my kind of was thinking about, if you take Reaganomics, you know, and, like, you project it forward into the future and you and just you see it develop... Uh, into this, you know, into into a world where, you know, we're dominated. Everything's dominated by these computer systems, and we live in these virtual realities. And um, like, what would it look like? And it was a pretty brutal world, you know, where it's all there's no law other than power, you know. And it, things existed in cyberspace in this virtual reality world, but at the same time, it was sort of, you know, intermixed with the, with the real world. And uh, like, there was no real law, you know. There was no order. It was just like what you can get away with, you know. It's like there was these giant corporations who had their giant, own giant, you know, artificial intelligence units that like protected the corporation and its interest. And if you tried to like hack into them and like steal some secrets, it would like you know fry your brain and kill you. And and so there was no like accountability other than just sort of, like, <laughs> raw power. And then and then the sort of the sneaky rebels and sort of these these sort of you know like people who are like working for murky, murky forces then, or maybe some of them are working for themselves. Anyway, he took it to this logical extreme and like to show how like, what a, what a dystopia, but maybe kind of cool dystopia, you know, but like still pretty dark place. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, he took it. It's, it was interesting. Yeah. Because on the one hand you had like the, the utopian Apple computer and then the dystopian science fiction that was already predicting, um, you know, it's something that we're actually coming close today because, all right, we're not like all jacking into virtual reality systems, right? But, but in that world, in, in Gibson's world, like you weren't ever sure who's, who, you know, who is who, like because everything could be like a virtual manifestation of something. Everything could be reprogrammed. So the person you're dealing with, you know, might have like you know someone else standing behind them, and you're really not sure who, you know, what, what people's interests are or who they're working for. In cyberspace, everything is virtual. You know, everything can be faked. Everything can be reprogrammed. And in a way, we're kind of living in that world now because, you know, with the Russian hacks, like, and Russian cyber operations and all these things, like, we don't really know if any of that happened. You know, if we don't know if they've been faked. We don't know if, you know, like, what the attacks, because we have no handle on them. You know? Yeah. We just only see the, the reporting on it and, like, some information leaked by intelligence agencies about them. And so, like, everything's virtual. We don't know. We're clearly being manipulated on some level by by forces we don't really can't really see, or we can at least guess at them because sometimes they're pretty obvious and apparent. But like he 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 what's great about his novel, I think, is that like he he not a big fan of it, but I think it's 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 pretty it's pretty interesting. Is that like he predicted this, the virtual nature of that and like how everything is kind of a cyber you know it's like a, a psyops in a way because you're never sure what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. Because everything is virtual, and um, and um, and um, yeah, so like you know, but that, but again, but that was taken up and celebrated by this new um, like generation of libertarian sort of computer nerds who liked the idea of themselves as like these sort of digital samurais, you know, who were like modified their bodies, you know, and like got all these like cool mods and got like you know 
got like swords coming <laughs> out of their out of their wrists and like they can like you know have you know specialized like uh, skeletons that are, can't be broken you know they got like laser eyes they can like tap into systems you know because they have like a, a shunt in their in their in their spine you know they like to see themselves as that because it's cool they're all wearing trench coats you know they're all doing crazy kung, kung fu moves right <laughs> yeah right they're like battling these powerful uh, you know artificial intelligence entities and they're winning right like it's like they like to see themselves as that they're listening to, to industrial music you know uh-huh. <laughs> and, and and like and so even though it was a dystopia it like defined actually in a positive way this new generation of libertarian pretty cynical kind of libertarian um, hacker culture right mm-hmm. um, that saw everything as a kind of as a power play uh, and that like where this where the smart the smart hackers win where the clever ones win where you do have some power if you're a clever hacker. And if you're like, and I think that that culture, you know, birthed like people like Julian Assange, you know, in, in a big way, just on some level, because you can kind of win mm-hmm. or at least score some points against these powerful entities by using these computer systems to get into them and to like steal secrets to expose them, right? Yeah. I mean, and so, um, so on the one hand, like, yeah, there's like a dystopian quality, but it's still held up as something actually positive because it, I don't know, like WikiLeaks culture and leaker culture does, isn't like a dystopian culture. It's, it believes that if you liberate secrets from these powerful institutions, you can change the world for the better. Yeah. Yeah. You spend a, a lot of time in your book talking about Wired Magazine and its origins. And I'm really glad that you did because it's something that growing up in the Bay Area and, and being familiar with Silicon Valley, it always sort of bothered me how sort of utopian and un critical it was of like the private sector especially during the around the time of like when google and those kinds of things exploded and you know magazines like wired would would sort of uh lead society to believe that google wasn't evil and things like that you know when, yeah. at the time google had the don't be evil mantra yeah, believe, you know you should, we should trust people you know when they, when they say <laughs> yeah things. trust corporations when they say things so what is it about wired that you think is so important for this sort of shift in our acceptance of actually i skipped over something but tell me so before we move on to wired explain when the arpanet went from being you know just in the u.s army's network of supercomputers as you call it to something that's actually you know, partly plugged into the civilian world. Well, it ha- it happened uh, in the eighties uh, with the creation of the N- NSFNet, which was created by the National Science Foundation as a kind of a as a as a as an upgrade to the ARPANET system, and like that would take it, that would bring it into the civilian world. So, NSFNet connected all these different universities and research institutions in the eighties, and um, it was created by the National Science Foundation as like a national national network, and they did, created it. You know, it would connect to the ARPANET and 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 to the old ARPANET because it was it's the same architecture, uh, and um, then with explicit um, goal of privatizing it as soon as, as soon as um, it became commercially viable, as soon as there were enough customers on it, enough enough um, 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 business on it that uh, it, that companies could make money by uh, taking over over portions of the networks as internet service providers, and so. That process began in, in the late six in late in late eighties in nineteen eighty six and, and terminated in nineteen ninety four when the NSFNet was fully privatized, and when the NSFNet was became fully privatized, it became the internet. So today, the internet, of course, is much bigger because it's been improved, it's been upgraded, it's it's, it's vastly more, um, it's, it's much bigger now. 
than, than it was in 1984 when it was privatized, but the, like the core of it on which everything else then grew was a privatized public infrastructure project. Mm-hmm. And that was explicitly created to be privatized, uh, which, is, which is another part of the history of the internet that almost no one knows about, and I didn't know about it you know, until I started really trying to explain and uh, understand how the transition from a military network from a, um, to a fully commercial system that we use today, how it, it happened. Because there's like a black hole in our understanding of the history. The internet, you think like, oh yeah, it's emerged from the Pentagon maybe at some point a long time ago, sure. But then like, you know, it got out somehow and then like it became the internet. Yeah. But like, what was that process? Yeah. And, and as I found out, you know, it's, 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 uh, it was very deliberate. You know, they they took this technology and they, they wanted to, the uh, federal government wanted to create a civilian network. Um, and, uh, they, but the federal government didn't want it to be government run yeah. eventually. And so, um, it was created, you know, in a way that could make it easy to, to privatize uh, once, once, once the time came. And uh, that's what happened. And, and in fact, I amazingly talked to this guy and I was like, I kind of almost like asked him half jokingly, you know, uh, the question, like he's this manager for the National Science Foundation who, who used to work for, for, um, for the U.S. Army connecting uh, U.S. Army uh, supercomputers to the ARPANET. And then he was hired by the National Science Foundation to design a civilian version of that kind of network and then to privatize it. And I asked him when I got, uh, reached him, I said, like, you know, is it, is it right to, uh, to refer to you as the man who privatized the Internet? And I, like, expected him to, you know, say, oh, no, 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 no. of course not. What are you talking about? Instead, he said, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> so there's a guy who privatized the Internet, and we don't even know his name. You know? Yeah. And uh, which, which, you know, to me, as someone who comes, was born in Russia, born in the Soviet Union, it's very surprising because, um, you know, most Russians today, even the young ones, even the people who were probably too young to even remember the privatization process, they still know at least a couple of names of the people who were involved in that, mm-hmm. or the people who privatized their uh, national wealth, you know? But for the internet, um, you know, it's arguably the most important invention, uh, government invention of the 20th century. I mean, it's clearly hugely important uh, technology that underlies so much of our, of our life. Uh, like, no one knows, A, that it was actually privatized, and B, who the people who privatized this network were. And, you know, and this is like kind of astounding, you know, the ignorance here. And I, and I include myself into that as well. It's not, not, not passing judgment. I'm just saying it just it was shocking to me how such a vital piece of history, you know, recent history, has been lost and uh, totally, uh, totally um, buried. Um, and uh, it's, I, don't, I mean, I, I, I was like, I walked around shocked for, for weeks after, after I found out about this. And then I, and I like, you know, actually then got the guy to, to, to agree to an interview. And I talked to him for, for hours about it. And he was quite open about his role and, uh, and what the federal government did. And, and, um, and uh, yeah, so like, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole series of sub histories about the internet that we have just have no idea about. And, uh, but it's time that we, uh, we try to get some of that stuff back. That's Siri again, just <laughs> randomly turning on. What did you find out? Oh, look. It's yeah, a, what did Siri say? Here's what I found on the web for mysteries about the inner. 
The I'm, inner. <laughs> I guess it's mysteries. Of, I guess you meant histories of the internet. Is what was what That's I said. Thank, thank you, Siri. No problem. Yeah, my theory on that is that the uh, Siri is meant to make us think that speech to text stuff is not great and perfect yet. Uh huh. So it's like it's like oh she didn't hear what I said. Oh, yeah. oh silly Siri. She's she didn't. She thought I said this and I meant this, but I bet you that shit though. Like they're actually. <laughs> Operating on is like flawless. It's pretty good though. Like if you actually, yeah. if you actually like, no, uh, it is. Yeah, I, I like if you try to dictate a note. Yeah, it works like nine, you know, nine letters out of ten, like perfect. I mean, you can go, f- you know, f- a couple of sentences in it, and it read, and it understands you perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah, like now it's obviously, you know, it's, but yeah, it's it's pretty funny when it like when it turns on. You know, you're reminded always like what the fuck. <laughs> there's a, like just a there's a bug right here. You know, it's. Uh, and uh, it's funny. I mean, I don't know if you have any of these things in your in your home, but um, it's like everywhere I go now, you get these like you know echo echo dots or you know like the Amazon Alexa little towers. I don't. Everybody has them. It's yeah. it's kind of weird. Yeah, and, and they're, they're kind of useless too because like people talk to them and they're like they're not really <laughs> you know like they want you want to turn on the lights or turn down the volume or whatever, but they don't really like understand you very well. So you just have people get really frustrated with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, <laughs> it's really it's like what the hell is the point of this? No, the only thing I have close to that is I have smart. I have smart lights. Oh, they're, where they're connected through my Wi-Fi network in my and just in this room. Oh, so I have like I can. Uh, what do? You, you oh know. hell yeah! You get the mood light on. Yes, so that's that's as smart as my home gets. So you get yeah, um, it's like dis, it's a disco light. Yeah, um, is is that on your menu? Your, on your menu and your on your Mac right there? Wow. It, yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> So and now I can't find the the one the regular one that we were using before. But here, let's go with um, we'll do uh, what do tropical do? twilight. <laughs> it's not bad. Oh man, which I one is this? I don't know. That's one of my own presets. Okay, that's that's close to normal. <laughs> um, so I I mean I've always felt that Wired magazine played a really big role in sort of the shift in our. Um, acquiescence towards technology, especially towards like companies like Google and, 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 and just that, you know, whole era in general. So, um, you say wires impact was not just cultural, but was political. Um, give me some of the backstory on wired, wired magazine and why you think it was so important for the sort of this utopian or just not being fearful of technology companies and, and who who's the founder? Like, what what's, what are the origins of it? Who's behind it? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, the it's a Wired magazine is like, if if this Wired magazine didn't exist, another one would it was existed. You know, I think. I mean, I think there was a cultural um, movement at the time. You know, a cultural force where computers um, were suddenly big business. You know, in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on, on personal computing. It was a huge business. It was exploding, and this and this industry needed, you know, a public public relations division. You know, needed a market. We needed marketing. It needed like, um, you know, a whole ecosystem of 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 magazines, of journalists, of of, uh, of writers uh, to promote the lifestyle. You know, of the computer lifestyle, the computerized lifestyle. It's like, you know, it's like if you it's like selling washing machines or, or selling automobiles or selling, you know. Um, or selling, 
Uh, cigarettes, you know, uh, like you need a, there was a, there was money to be made, and of course there was gonna there was gonna be entities that were gonna emerge that would uh, do that to 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 to, to provide um, computers with a with a radical aura with some something that you know that was that was to to pitch them to people as something that would make make them your, make life easier, make life better, make life more enjoyable. That would open up these new vistas for you. That would make you a connected you know, citizen that would, that would uh, allow you to do all these cool things. And so Wired was just a kind of a, you know, a, a, a magazine that, that, that appeared in the 90s. Um, it was started by this Louis Rosetto, Rosetto, who was actually, uh, who used to, who was, who was like a college Republican in the, in the 60s in Columbia University. You know, while, while you know, most, most uh, people in Colombia were uh, like um, uh, against the Vietnam War and uh, uh, like engaged in radical politics, he was like campaigning for uh, Nixon, you know. <laughs> uh, and he was just sort of this like old, you know, early 1960s libertarian who um, got into the publishing business and in Europe and um, like uh, started writing for some com- computer publications and, and realized that like, oh wait, what the world needs now, this is in the late 80s, what the world needs is like a computer lifestyle magazine. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he um, like put together this like, you know, mock-up for Wired as a, as, as a, as very much a, not a, not a, not a, not like a, um, a magazine that does journalism in traditional sense, uh, but really like a lifestyle magazine that promotes a lifestyle and promotes a product, uh, and very much connected to the industry that it pr- promotes. And so he went out on the road and like try to pitch, try to find investors in America, and he couldn't really do, find investors for whatever reason. Um, but he did find someone who was interested in, in this guy named, named Nicholas Negroponte, who was uh, actually a a really rich um, Greek-American who came from a very wealthy Greek family. His uh, brother, John Negroponte, was a Reagan uh, official in the Reagan administration who, um, who uh, basically served as a, as, a, as a conduit for funds to the Contras uh, who fought the Sandinistas in, in, in Nicaragua, the sort of this left-wing um, Sandinista government. In, in Nicaragua, so he's connected to the to the military establishment. He himself was an, was was a, was a longtime ARPA contractor who worked on uh, projects connected to the ARPANET mm-hmm. and uh, worked on projects actually with a counterinsurgency component. Uh, and by uh, the early '90s, he kind of uh, he rebranded himself and started this uh, uh, outfit in, in MIT called MIT Media Lab. So what it did is it, it took these new computer technologies that were created by ARPA and he tried to find um, sort of commercial applications for them. And, and MIT Media Lab was sort of this privatized think tank from MIT that took corporate sponsorship and any corporation that, that sponsored and became a partner of MIT Media Lab would, uh, would be given free use of the technology that the, that the Media Lab created. And so they did early work in, in you know, like a virtual reality a lot of like new kind of internet media stuff that uh, technologies that um, that were developing at the time, and so he created this like private public uh, you know, um, um, like think tank that would develop computer technology that 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 media companies could use, and so like just about every TV network in America was was a partner, was an investor in it, like a bunch of a um, bunch of um, Japanese media companies. Uh, mo- um, so he was this just this sort of like I don't know a guy who took 
who was able to monetize on some of the contractor work that he did and, and to create to create a, a thriving um, sort of um, uh, R and D business uh, for corporations. And he uh, also became this guru who uh, who was seen as, as as a guru who could predict the future, who could see where where the technology was taking us. And so he was like a favorite in TED talks and. So he was a big personality in the early '90s, and they cornered him, and they somehow got him to to uh, agree to 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 underwrite the magazine. And so he was their main investor, and uh, was able to bring in other investors because of his name, and um, and it like it blew up from there. I mean, they became like they were. It was like a viral hit, uh, uh, Wired magazine. They they immediately um, they kind of positioned themselves not as not as journalists really because they were never critical of technology. From the beginning, they were more like yeah, they were more like a, a, the public relations arm of the of the personal computer industry, and uh, their very first uh, cover story was actually about the military, and they 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 wrote this glowing profile of um, um, of um, of a DARPA program that created a, like virtual reality computer game, f- but for tank simulations, <laughs> and so like. And so they talked about how this is the future of you know of warfare and how this is the future you know of the world. Look how cool it is. So from the very beginning, um, they melded the sort of uh, like computer radicalism um, with uh, military technology and promote, promoting military technology as, as actually also something very radical and cool. So they, they kind of set the tone for for computer journalism um, as it even exists today. Still, I think I mean this idea that. Most computer journalism isn't very critical of the computer industry, of the, of the computer industry that it covers. Yeah, uh, it's uh, usually, I mean, traditionally be called, you know, marketing. Uh, it'll be the, the, like the public relations division of of, the, of of a computer industry group of some kind, you know, uh, like the Computer Association of America. Uh, I mean, and like, and, and you, you actually look at Vice magazine, and its 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 coverage of technology is very very uncritical. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there might be some criticism, but it's very mild. Uh, um, and actually, you know, like something like, um, you know, The Verge. Uh, I mean, what are some other tech publications that are that are read today? Um, you, have, you have Vice, you know, Motherboard, right? You have mm-hmm. The Verge, you have Wired Magazine, you have, um, there's got to be some other ones. Gizmodo. Gizmodo. Yeah. And anything of like, if you, they all kind of share the same kind of um, outlook. You know, they're, 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 they're very excited about any, any kind of new military technology that comes out. They're usually online with any kind of war that has, that's happening. You know, um, they're usually very much in, in line on, in line with uh, and on board with whatever new technology is being rolled out by Google or Facebook or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they always, usually take these companies for you know at their word. Yeah, like whatever they say is like you just printed uncritically and not really um, analyzed. Um, yeah, I mean, Wired was like you know the tr- a trendsetter, and you know, and it was and the people who helped. Put together, uh, its early editors were actually proteges of Stuart Brand, and Stuart Brand was himself like a columnist in Wired magazine. So there's a direct connection between Stuart Brand, the Whole Earth Catalog, um, um, and Wired magazine. I mean, they're like part of the same kind of cultural movement that brought the the, the hippie counterculture commune into the digital age, mm-hmm. and uh, and but it was never really critical of. Of power was never really critical of, of American foreign policy, and was usually pretty right wing and libertarian. I mean, Stuart Brand himself was a, like a pretty hardcore anti communist. You know, that was like yeah. in, in his diaries he wrote about how he's like that was his big fear when he was a kid. It's like to be invaded by the Soviet Union and made into some kind of robotic commie that has no free will and is 
mm. you know, told to march in like lockstep, you know, with everybody else, and like that, basically afraid that his individual individuality would be taken away by mm-hmm. sort of this sort of, you know, um, malevolent force that uh, was was there. And, um, and you know, a lot happened in between the foundation of uh, Wired magazine and where we are today. But just touch on a few other things that are sort of hot topics right now in, you know, this argument of privatized internet overreach or surveillance. You bring up the Electronic Frontier Foundation in your book. And, you know, growing up in the Bay Area and knowing what I knew maybe like 10 years ago, I thought that the EFF was really, really good. I remember even someone from the EFF they didn't reach out to me, but they put me in, they tried to put me in, someone tried to put me in touch with someone from the EFF about when I made the fake beheading video, um, because they felt that someone at the EFF might represent me if the, I got prosecuted. Pro- they probably wouldn't have now looking back on it. You know, people like Mark Klein, I met him. Uh, he was actually one of the only private sector whistleblowers in this whole ongoing NSA scandal. Um, I met him at a hearing between the EFF and the federal government. Um, in Oakland, it's a series of these ongoing hearings that are still going on. And I remember just even at the hearing getting this impression that it almost just seemed like the EFF was going through the rigmarole of this and at the same time not going after like private sector spying. Um, and then I, you know, found out from, I think even it was from reading some of your stuff maybe about just how much money they had already taken from companies like Google um, and that they were already taking a lot of money from companies that were already, you know, had troubling relationships with the federal government. Yeah. Like, what do you think of an organization like that? Is it, I mean, is it too hyperbolic to say it's like sort of a wolf in sheep's clothing or is it something, is it more complicated than that? Well, I mean, I mean, it's a corporate think tank, you know, um, um, it's a corporate think tank, think tank. And I think it's, it's, it's a corporate think tank. That's, that's its main, uh, objective uh, is to appear as a grassroots uh, organization, um, b- but that in reality is is, is wholly carrying uh, water for its corporate donors, and it's, uh, and so it, you call it an astroturf group. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that while this might sound kind of uh, out there and and, and a bit uh, um, like um, um, like unbelievable, you know, to, to maybe some of your listeners like. Be- because, like, what do you mean the EFF is, is, is an is a astroturf group? Well, I think it is that. I mean, it is that if you actually look at its finances. And I think that in, in I don't know, I don't know, some years, maybe 10 years from now, we will look at it no differently than we look at um, like Freedom Works or, uh, or some other kind of like, or Cato Institute, you know. Um, we won't look at it any differently. We will see that it's just, or like AEI, you know, mm-hmm. or the Heritage Foundation, or the Brookings Institute, you know, uh, uh, for that matter, like any other kind of corporate group, right? That that carries that, that carries that represents the interests of some kind of uh, corporate cor- its corporate sponsors. I mean, because you, yeah, it's completely funded by Silicon Valley, right? And so, of course, it's going to uh, represent its interests, but it's it's um, its power lies in, in convincing us that it has our interests in in in, in that it cares about our interests and that the interests of, of, of average Americans is actually in line with the interests of Silicon Valley corporations like Google and Facebook. Yeah. And so it's it's actually very uh, 
uh, insidious in that in that sense of like convincing us to identify ourselves, our own interests, with the interests of these giant companies that are actually manipulating us and are making money off of us and are surveilling us and that are partnering with the national security state and that are you know extremely powerful politically and economically, obviously, and, and derive that power from from it, their ability to spy on us with impunity. Mm-hmm. And EFF's major contribution in the, in, in the sort of post-Snowden uh, era was, is to redirect people's uh, worries about surveillance away from the, the, the private sector and into only just the government surveillance, right? So exactly, yeah. It, it, it never cares about Google surveillance. It never talks about it. Just, you know, search, search through its archives, you know? EFF does not care about Google spying on its users with impunity. Mm-hmm. It does not want to even bring attention to that. It doesn't. But the one thing it does it does worry about is like, oh, I don't know, like sometimes bad security at, at you know, some of these companies like Equifax or whatever, or, you know, that, uh, and then like, oh, it's this bad corporate actor. You know, you should really have protected your, your you know, your system better. Why are you leaking all this? Uh, all this, you know, user data online, but like the actual business of surveillance, the the underlying business that powers Silicon Valley is not uh, criticized or or even or even talked about. EFF. And so, it's it you know it it does have some okay work sometimes. You know, it, it's not like all bad, but like I think it is uh, in the end um, um, sets sets the privacy movement and sets people's political awareness about Silicon Valley back. You know. And uh, and uh, really re- retards their development because um, it's it restricts people's idea of what is privacy and uh, to just government, and I think that's one of its mo- biggest um, sort of contributions to our culture is that it's a very negative contribution, and you know and of course it promotes purely technological means of protecting our privacy, purely technical means of te- producing a, uh, protecting our privacy, like the signal, um, you know. Um, messaging app or tor or the tor project it's that that is its solution to surveillance online and not trying to actually rein in uh the power of these uh these of these silicon valley companies and the power to surveil us with 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 no control at all um you know like it's weird i think that we allow company like Google to, to, to uh, collect data on every part of our life. You know, I mean, would we, would we have the same um, position if it wasn't Google doing this, but Philip Morris, if it wasn't Google doing this, but it was Coke Industries who was, that was, you know, could read us like an open book. Mm-hmm. We understand that those companies are very politically motivated. They have these owners uh, that, and they have, they're politically motivated and they have, they are, they are trying to shape society and its laws in their favor, right? Now, if a company has that much data on you know, American voters, and those voters determine the fate, the political fate of these companies, do they do do we would we have any um, illusions that that these companies would not put that data to use somehow? Would that would not turn the, the data that they have on us against us in some way? Would use it against us actually as a weapon? I mean, are Google and Facebook doing that? Are they actually using the you know vast amount of behavioral data that they have on us to actually influence us somehow, you know, and and, and influence us to vote against their own interests, to think of against their own interests, um, because these companies are very, um, very, um, they they uh, they are vulnerable, 
Uh, they're vulnerable to antitrust legislation. They're vulnerable to privacy legislation. So if there was any kind of privacy legislation passed in America that limited uh, the amount of information that these companies could collect on us, they would, their, you know, their value would tank. Their, 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 their business would suffer. And yeah. so it's in their interest to, to keep us not thinking about the surveillance that they carry out, uh, but to keep us sort of thinking about only the sort of like gover- government structures that it might be spying on us. Um, I mean, the question is, and they've been very effective in doing that, you know, kind of incredibly, surprisingly effective, you know, to the point where like no one even thinks about that at all. Yeah. And so I don't know. I don't have, I don't have any, any, any information about this. And uh, we don't, we, it's very hard to see inside those companies and just to, 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 to get a sense of how they're using that data. Aside from, you know, maybe um, increasing their the efficiency of their targeting advertising campaigns. Because, Silicon Valley hasn't hasn't had its Edward Snowden. No one's come forward. You know, no one's risked their livelihood mm-hmm. uh, to like expose the inner workings of these companies and expose the inner workings of how they use the data that they amass on us. That's and, true. You know, yeah. we haven't had a. I mean, we haven't really had any serious whistleblowers from inside Google. No, or or any of the. There's been companies. leaks. You know, there's been occasional leaks of certain single aspects. Like there was a leak about how they were making money, ad money on the back of questionable sites that could be construed as child pornography. Yeah. That was like, so there's things like that that come out, but nothing on the level of what you're talking about. And I mean, look, you know, these, I remember like Eric Schmidt, Eric Schmidt joking at some conference um, where he did get a question about like, oh, like, I mean, you have all this data, like you got to be using it in some way to, you know, to to uh, boost like Google's bottom line like uh, you know not just the advertising but he's like well yeah you know we got together one moment and uh, at what point we like said yeah we should uh, yeah we can we can we have all this data like we can predict flus can we like predict the markets <laughs> and then he's like oh, we should do that and it's like oh well you know and then there's like oh we that'll probably be illegal so because they would have you to be using insider information too yeah and so, ah, well, we, oh, we can't do that, you know. So we, we decided to just drop the matter altogether. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> That's really fascinating. <laughs> so, so you know, it's wow. uh, <laughs> oh, well, if Eric Schmidt says it's true, you know, it's like I mean, I can't imagine them using it in some way, right? And um, because the, look, I mean, they're sitting on this, on this, on on a, on the kind of on, on information about people. Uh, that of a kind of information you know that has never existed in the history of mankind. No one, no corporation has ever had such a uh, clear look at the people uh, you know who um, de- decide this corporation's fate in a democracy. You know, yeah. And the liberal idea is that we make decisions based on informed, um, sort of uh, informed. We make informed decisions, right? We learn about the world. We make informed decisions about it. Then we cast our votes in in, in elections based on based on, based on the information that we've got about the world. And, and so we're sort of rational voters, you know. But what happens when we live in a world mediated by the very companies that are trying to influence us? What happens in a world where we get all our news from Google and Facebook, where the news that we see is is, me, is mediated by their by their you know black box algorithms? When those algorithms and, and what happens in a world where those companies that we uh, over which we have a, uh, you know uh, over which we have power are actually trying to influence us directly in order for us to 
to not pay attention to them at all. And I mean, I, I don't know, do they use do they use that information in some way? I think it'd be pretty naive to think that they don't. But we just have no idea about any of this. Speaking of influence campaigns, you know, and, 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 and Russia. Like, we live in an influence campaign. Mm-hmm. Every time you go on Google, you're in an, you are in an influence campaign, potentially. Yeah. Every time you go on Facebook, you are in an influence campaign. Twitter, too, increasingly, because they're like little promoted, you know, they're... There are timelines that that is now that is now out of whack and is based on some kind of algorithmic thing. So like, how? But so they have all the power there, and we have there. There is nothing there. We have no like democratic leverage over any anything that they do. They're completely beyond accountability or, or regulation at this point. So um, I don't know. Yeah, like EFF like doesn't look at that at all. It just cares about the NSA. Looking, you know, and metadata or whatever, like some some very basic things that are important, but like are very, you know, a sliver of what's actually going on. So, without putting you on the the hot seat um, and asking you for what what is the solution to all this, like, what, I guess a better question would be, what do you think? How do you think people should be seeing this right now? And is there any, you know, if encryption, like using Signal and Tor, is in my opinion, I mean, and I'm, I don't know how much you share this, but it's a it's bad advice of how to, of how to deal with it. Like, what do you think is a good uh, re, some kind of recourse we could have? We'll yeah. just be completely getting off the grid. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't. I mean, like, there's no need to be paranoid about it. You know, like we're, you know, we're, you know, it's just we, this is the world that we live in. You know, and like, look, you know, the internet is not something that is apart from the world. It's not something that we can tackle on its own, right? I mean, the internet is is what it is now. It's a, it's it's dominated by spies and it's dominated by, you know, powerful corporations mm-hmm. because our world is dominated by that. Yeah. Because, you know, it, you don't need to be on the internet to, to be in a world that's dominated by those forces. You just walk out of your house. Yeah. And so, and those forces are like the 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 most powerful forces in, in society right now they're the, they are the they are the driving forces they are what makes the world kind of go around you know um and we are you know we we can't even we can't even get like healthcare you know like what most people in america want we can't even get basic things you know like we have no power the internet look we live in a world dominated by spies dominated by giant corporations and in a world in which we have no political power to even to even enact basic, like, necessary goods, you know, like healthcare. Mm-hmm. So why would the internet be any different? Why would, why would the internet be any different from the real world that we inhabit? The internet is dominated by spies, dominated by powerful corporations, and it's a place where we have no power, just like the world that's outside your doorstep. So, you know, I think to, to the solution is actually kind of obvious, but at the same time, it's it's hard and extremely difficult because it's it will be part of some kind of bigger political solution for for the world and, and it can't be a, it can't be apart from it um and so you know that's why i think these things like tor and signal aside from you know the whole like problem of them being funded by the u.s government and them, them being deployed as uh, tools of regime change and soft power there's the political component um um which is that you know, people clearly care about care about their privacy, and clearly worry that there are these accountable forces on the internet that can spy on you, and yet we and, it, and you have no real power to do anything about it. So they're drawn to 
a technological solution because it's the only one that seems to be available. But what happens is that people that actually worry about this and think about this are driven, driven into, into doing something that actually has no effect on anything. They're given a false sense of privacy. They are given a false sense that they're actually doing something to make the world a better place and taking you know, personal responsibility for the world. But in reality, they're just not doing anything at all. And in fact, they're just sucking away whatever energy there is to, to whatever energy there is for a real privacy movement gets sucked out you know, into, and redirected into these useless avenues. Um, because you know, people only have so much energy to think about things during the day. And like, if they care about privacy, well, here's a solution. It's Tor. Here's a solution. It's Signal. It's like, oh, I checked that button. Like, I, 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 can, I can rest easy now. I've done something. And, but that is a false sense of, of, of political action because you have not done anything. And in fact, you know, you're, you're actually setting back a privacy, a privacy movement, uh, a political privacy movement back. And, uh, um, you know, and EFF is complicit in this because it's, it's one of the main promoters of these tools. As a, as a form of politics. I mean, we live in a world where we've outsourced our politics to apps, you know? <laughs> like we, it's weird, right? <laughs> to think that you can do that. Like, but we've, we're at that point and it seems totally normal. Like Edward Snowden, like, told the Black Lives Matter, you know? It's like, they asked him like, what we should do to, you know, stay safe on the internet. He's like, use Signal, use Tor, encrypt everything. He's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's great. That's going to, that's really going to, you know, that's really going to change things for Black Lives Matter. You know, it's like yeah. to just to all be in, living on inside an encrypted app um, is the solution, you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's a fair, it's a fair answer. <laughs> it's honest. So I guess uh, tell people where they can get Surveillance Valley uh, you can buy Surveillance Valley wherever uh, books are sold, uh, you know, at your local bookstore or uh, anywhere on the internet, really. Um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, you really should try to support your local bookstore, but not everyone has a local bookstore around, so you got to deal with, you know, the whatever, whoever we, we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, of course, uh, you should definitely buy the book. You know, I mean, that goes without saying. Um, <laughs> buy the book. Buy the book. And uh, it seems like it's getting very nice, uh, wide distribution because it seems like it is available in a lot of bookstores. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, Congratulations. It's, uh, I, the New York Times hasn't yet given me a glowing review, but, you know. Well, thank you for taking the time to come out here and come on Media Roots Radio in person. Yasha, it was, uh, it's great to finally meet you. Yeah, it was cool, man. Good to meet you, too. Thanks for having me on. If you're a Media Roots listener and are already donating on Patreon, thank you very much for your contribution. It's greatly appreciated. If you haven't donated to us on Patreon yet, please consider donating to us using our website, patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. <laughs>